Welcome to episode 571 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Ready, John. Welcome along to episode 571 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom, Bevan James Oz. How you going, mate? I'm bloody good. Where are you this week? Back it up. Really Back it up. I think he's, I'm in Prague. He's not very organised. He's in Prague. Yeah, I, I, I spent a bit of time in Berlin. We checked out the wall. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. someone told me to get the wall. And we've got a few days in Prague. We've got five days in Prague. I've got to find, I'll fi- try to find the name of a restaurant we went to in Prague. It's awesome. You've got these, these skewers, these massive skewers that kind of bolted to the table, which had this big... Well, bolted um, to the table? Yeah, well, they brought them in the skewer, and it was like a skewer of meat and vegetables and whatever. It was awesome. It was cheap as chips, and it was awesome. Did you like Prague? Prague was great. Everyone talks about Prague. Did a, did a walking tour in Prague, and it was back fantastic. it up, John. I did it on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did it yesterday, I should say, because I've got my itinerary here right in front of me. Prague walking tour booked. Booked. Yeah. Nice. Ten o'clock. There you go. Yeah, so I, I imagine it might be the same walking tour. <laughs> so there you go. Looking forward to that. Oh no, I really enjoyed that. And uh, where are you right now? I'm still in Christchurch. I've got one week to go. Weather's, weather, you know, weather today. I don't know what it was going to be, but it's probably, it's middle of winter. Actually, today is, or tomorrow is the shortest day of the year. So it's pretty bloody dark right now, Bevan. Wow, it's pretty dark. Okay, now, now I'm, I'm breaking the illusion, John, because it's now, when we're recording this, it's the 24th of June. No, of May. Nearly a month ago. Yeah. And it's pretty dark this morning when I was coaching. And we're a month away. Wow. Shortest day tomorrow. Because I was coaching this morning and we finished it. Maybe 10 past 7, 20 past 7, and it'll still get pretty dark then. Oh, poor you. Me, oh, son, walking towards the hard life. Okay, and this week's show, oh, I'm talking proudly brought to you by Athlinks.com, social networking for endurance athletes, extreme endurance, Arctic Buffer, and our patrons. And then we're going to name a few of those, John. Chris the Battleship Niebauer. I have to say, is that last S- name? Uh, Stan Laser Lezak. Laser Lezak, that's a good one. And we've got Marcus Thunderbolt. Aronson. Aronson? Aronson. Aronson. Oh, it's only one hour. Uh, Aronson. Okay. And Jombo, in this week's show, we've got a few interviews coming up. Who's the first one? We have Chris Case. Who's, who's Chris Case? He is from The Haywire Heart. Oh, How much that book exercise can kill you and what to do to protect your heart? Are we all screwed, John? Yeah. <laughs> no, you and I have got a lot more to be concerned about than other people apparently you know if, if you've been a long-term athlete and you've been going hardcore for a long time this is a, probably an interview and a you, don't book want to do? you probably Live want to denial. take some consideration to or you can put your head in your sand and maybe i think it's about 25 to 30 minutes long just put your head in the sand and pop back up on the other side <laughs> okay. for a bit of strength training you're going die <laughs> <laughs> uh and we've also got uh chris hardley uh, wait a second, it's hardly, yeah, no, Hindley. Uh, Chris Hindley is coming on. He's also a strength and conditioning coach for the Strength Network, Endurance Network, and he, he helps quite a few top pro athletes. So um, we just thought we'd get him on and get him talking about how important strength is for your training. I've actually done that interview, but I do it tomorrow and this time. So <laughs> I haven't actually done the interview yet, but we'll be getting on, and I'm sure we have a pretty great interview. And then we have another Legends at the end, John. We have our Legends Hour with Valerie Silk. I love doing this interview because I really wasn't quite sure what was going to come out of it. So she was the original, basically the person who took Iron Man from almost 
not quite day one, but from the very early stages and transitioned all the way across to when it became um, big time news when they made it onto NBC and they had all the Sports Illustrated and kind of took it through that era from being just a bunch of guys doing it to actually being an event and then actually to being a proper international event and bringing in prize money etc so I love this interview and when we asked people who they wanted to hear from again uh, Valerie Silk's name came up so we wanted to replay that interview and I just thought it was so interesting hearing about those early days and how the sport did transition and from a lady you know you'd expect someone who was involved early on to have maybe had a really strong interest in the sport and be very passionate about it mm. but she came out from a totally different angle and for you those of you who haven't heard the interview I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Okay so John we are just going to talk about one race uh, K226 is one race on? No no so k226.com is where you want to be going to if you want to find all the non- WTC races, they basically have them all, pretty much all of them listed up there. They do a fantastic job. So check out k226.com. So you're just coming back because you've got nothing to talk about this week? No, uh, I just wanted to see what races oh. are coming up. So this week is the week of the 20th of June. So this weekend coming up, we've got a whole bunch of races coming up actually. We've got the bloody hell... If you bitch and moan about Ironman and how much you have to pay for entry fees, there are so many non-branded races out there these days where you can go and find cheaper entry fees. Yeah, they're going to be smaller races. You're not going to get that same Ironman McDonald's experience. But in the UK, there's the, oh no, there's the Mavoria Man, there's a Swiss Extreme Man, there's Hits in America, there's a race in Iceland, the Schnelfenis race, there's the Austria Extreme race, there's Challenge Poznan, there's Cotswold 226, and then there's the Northwest Tri-Man in Spain. So a lot of iron distance racing, non-branded stuff this weekend. So enjoy it for those of you that are out there. Okay, here we go, John. Here is... Chris Case. Chris Case. Okay, guys, uh, this week we are going to be talking about heart-related issues. Um, it's something that we see a lot of in triathlon, other endurance sports, and it's something a lot of people don't know too much about, and they sometimes tend to not want to know too much about. So we've got one of the authors on today, Chris Case, and uh, welcome along to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Uh, now, tell us what was the motivation to do this book? Well, it all started when a friend of mine, who is a longtime contributor to Velo News, which is the magazine I work for, um, his name is Leonard Zinn, and, and I feel like he's pretty famous in the cycling world, both because of the bikes he makes and the work he's done in the field, especially his maintenance books. Mm-hmm his technical gifts. Um, so he was 55 at the time when he was riding up our local climb here in, in, in Boulder, our, sort of our famous climb uh, called Flagstaff Mountain. And his heart rate just spiked uh, dramatically and stayed elevated for a long time and something he had never experienced before, something that at the time he really didn't put too much um, importance on but later called his physician and it led to him having to go immediately to the emergency room which led him to the cardiac unit in the hospital and um, it took a few months really for him to realize the significance of what had happened to him but I 
was conversing with him all along as he had different tests and things. And he was eventually diagnosed with um, multifocal atrial tachycardia and began reaching out to friends and former racing buddies. He was at one time on the new, uh, U.S. national team. Um, and we realized that there were a lot of people that he knew um, that had issues with their hearts related to um, what, what he had, which is, generally speaking, an arrhythmia. So I ended up doing an, an, a magazine article on arrhythmias in endurance athletes, um, and the, the reaction was uh, overwhelming, really. Uh, Leonard, in particular, was inundated with responses. Um, the large majority of them somewhat touching, uh, whether they, they were, thank you for writing this article, I've been dealing with this for a long time, and I finally have some understanding of what I've been going through, to um, old colleagues that he hadn't uh, heard from in a long time that came out and said, you know, uh, I'm dealing with this as well. So the response was, was um, very, very positive, even though it's a, you know, it's a it's like you said, it's a subject that a lot of people don't necessarily want to hear about because it may make them think twice maybe about doing, pushing themselves as hard as they do into late, later, later in life. But anyways, we decided that it was such an important topic. Um, in the magazine, we could only write so much, so we decided that a book was the next step, and um, we recruited a electrophysiologist from the United States that has done a lot of research in this field speaks um, frequently about endurance athletes and heart arrhythmias and Dr. John Mandrola um, who has a wonderful website filled with um, a lot of information on this topic it's uh, Dr. John M. Dot com I believe no, dot org according to your book I've got your book right in front of me okay. so dot, dot org <laughs> All right. And, and away we went. And um, the response from the book has been just as uh, positive and And we are, you know, ha very happy we undertook this project, even though it was a fairly difficult and complex subject to tackle. So when in terms of the book, you know, who is have you tried to target it at a 101 level so anyone can kind of pick it up and get it? Or do you need to have a bit of you know uh, science understanding before embarking on on reading your way through it you know how, how heavy a read is it there are definitely some sections that are pretty heavy but we do try to build up to those heavier sections of the book and we make a point of saying that you know if you uh, don't really want to understand the molecular or the the cellular uh, issues that might be going on or the the ion exchange that is taking place to conduct electricity throughout the heart, you can skip that and you'll still get an immense amount of information and, and knowledge from the book. So I don't think anybody has to have a, uh, a science background to read this. I think it's uh, uh, something that's accessible for pretty much anyone and like I said, we do include a lot of um, complex science, but 
it it can be sort of passed over for for more interesting things if 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 somebody doesn't want to learn about how calcium and sodium and potassium uh, work in the in the setting of the heart. So in, in terms in terms of heart related issues that we typically see in endurance athletes, is it normally arrhythmias or is is there a whole multitude of issues that are going on or are there some more common things that you guys have seen that come up with you know your typical middle of the pack um, endurance athlete or front of the pack that's been doing the sport for quite a long time is there any commonality out there about the types of issues you guys are seeing mm. that's a that's a good question with a with a, a potentially long answer <laughs> eh, the most common arrhythmia that is found in people is atrial fibrillation. So the atrium, the atria, two atrium, uh, a left and right atrium, are the top chambers of the heart, and then of course there are the two ventricles below on the lower the lower chambers of the heart. The so atrial fibrillation is the most common type of arrhythmia, and that's a uh, an issue where the atrium will fibrillate rather than uh, contract normally, and so it's more of a a quivering sensation. Yeah. Um, So there, like I said, it's, there's a lot of, lot of, there's, it's a multifaceted answer because while we focus mostly in the book on arrhythmias, which are electrical problems, that isn't to say that we don't you don't see issues of the plumbing system and vascular mm. vascular problems of the heart as well in endurance athletes and and the thing that is potentially connecting the two problems is this idea of inflammation so prolonged endurance activity leads to inflammation we all know that Mm-hmm. in our muscles and a heart is a muscle and so oftentimes um, there's scarring and there's uh, changes to the cellular structure of the heart that lead to um, enlargements in the heart and and um, the scarring can lead to the uh, abnormal conduction of electricity through the heart. If you think of the heart as a, a sheet and electricity tends to flow through the heart in a wave, but if you have scar tissue in the heart from this prolonged activity and the, the inflammation, the inflammatory process, then you'll get uh, a, 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 almost like a rock in a river where the water will have to part and come back around to um, flow normally, but there can be little eddy, eddy currents that are created. And, and arrhythmias can act in a, a similar way where the re-entry of the electrical signal doesn't take place in a normal way, and, and that can lead to these um, abnormalities in the, the conduction of electricity and therefore the, the um, contraction of the heart. So, is, so this, is this something we should all be concerned about, or, or you know, um, if we're just you know 
mid 40s uh, 50s whatever it might be and we've been doing endurance sports for for bloody ages and and life's hunky-dory and we're we're just carrying on um should we be concerned or should is it people that maybe feel that they have got a few symptoms that should be sitting up and listening i wouldn't say that everybody should be concerned but i think you should definitely keep in mind um what can happen if you push yourself too hard and you don't rest as as much as you train? But also, I think it's worth pointing out that um, while you might be able to get away with things, so to speak, at a younger age, it's it may be worth um, developing healthier habits while you're young, so that when you do age, that's mm-hmm those those healthier habits are already in place so that you're not pushing yourself to um to the brink does um we have one question in from from a listener she was asking about whether this issue is is it all gender specific you know are, are males more likely to be um have issues than females or is it just people that do lots of endurance sports that are that are more likely to be um affected for for you know if they do sports for a long period of time is there, is there anything in gender or is it uh genetic or is it just random uh, that's a good question no it's um it definitely takes place in both males and females it takes place in a age uh, across age ranges honestly but you definitely will see it in, in older athletes primarily. Yeah. Um, what's interesting between the genders is that it's, it, 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 it's hard to know whether you see it less in females because there are fewer females pushing mm-hmm. themselves or there is something protective about uh, being female that prevents them from developing an arrhythmia. Mm. Um, and then also, this is this is almost the most fascinating aspect of it, and but also unfortunate is that um, when when you look at studies of how often females are misdiagnosed or or remain undiagnosed with heart issues, it's uh, I think it's about seven times greater, hmm. where they will go in to see a doctor complaining of heart issues and they'll either be dismissed as having um, an anxiety disorder or something else or they'll be misdiagnosed with um, some other condition other than a heart issue. Uh, in the book, we, we uh, have a series of case studies where we talked, I, I specifically um, interviewed all of the athletes that we, we profiled with through um, a range of arrhythmias, and it was it was definitely harder for me to find females with an arrhythmia, but I did find a couple. One of them was from Australia, another one from from the Bay Area, San Francisco area of, of the United States, and um, the the one in particular from from the United States. It took her ten years to be correctly diagnosed. Believe it or not, um, in an area where Arguably, they're some of the best doctors in the world. She was dismissed time and again. She was misdiagnosed time and again. And um, it, it's, a, it's a very real issue that, that females face when they're trying to understand what's going on with their heart. 
Well, Chris, you're 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 a um, a broadcasting expert here because you've actually led into the next topic fairly nicely. So, diagnosing diagnosing issues, you know, um, what are the warning signs? I mean, I know you go into this in a lot more detail in the book, but if someone's out there going, well, oh, jeepers, I had a little flutter or a little bit lightheaded one day. Am I at risk? Um, you know, what are the the key warning signs that athletes should be paying attention to to help? I guess get that diagnosis correct. Right. So there's there's two different types of, of 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 warning signs or symptoms. Some that are more serious than others. And you know, if you're having pain in your chest or uh, difficulty breathing or you're you, you've fainted, that's a ser- very serious symptom, and that deserves pretty pretty fast attention, pretty immediate attention. Um, if, if on the other hand, like you said, you're having some slight, uh, flutter or a, or skipped beats or things like that, that's definitely something to pay attention to. Um, in the book, you know, we tried to emphasize that, you know, before, you even go to see a doctor if you're having some of these um, uh, less serious symptoms, the best thing you can do is back off and rest. And by rest, I mean don't take an easy day on the bike. Just don't ride at all. Don't run at all and don't swim at all um, and put your feet up maybe and see what happens when you're you're well-rested. And that may correct the situation. Um, oftentimes if somebody goes into see a doctor and they complain of these skipped beats or things like that, that will be what the doctor prescribes first, first and foremost, they don't want to turn to, um, surgical intervention or, uh, pharmaceutical intervention. They prefer that, you know, they correct it through, through rest. And you, you, you talked about the um, the lady there that took whatever ten or fifteen years to get a correct diagnosis. You know, I've got an athlete that I was coaching or am coaching, and you know, he had real challenges getting that final diagnosis as well. And he had um, fib- fibrillation issues, and you know, he went and had a, an electrocardiogram, a, a, neck, a, a treadmill stress test, um, this, that, and the other thing. And eventually, he had um, a monitor while exercising. And I read in the introduction to your book, um, Leonard Zinn had some device that he was uh, wearing when he was out training that transmitted back to a, a medical center as well. So how right. can people sort of speed up the diagnosis process and, and where should they sort of start with this if they are concerned? Um, I think one of the, 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 the easiest ways to get a, more information is one of these phone uh, devices that you Alive Core is one brand that they 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 make a device that attaches to your phone and you hold it as if it, almost like two little paddles on the phone and it can help you understand whether your heart is um, in a, in arrhythmia or not and honestly that is a, a pretty um, significant device that's been developed to, to help people understand what their heart might be doing. Certainly wearing a heart rate monitor is also, can be pretty important. Not, it won't necessarily detect every type of arrhythmia, but certainly if you have a, 
uh, a tachycardia, which is an elevated heart rate, it'll pick up on that. And if that's completely out of the ordinary, that is definitely a warning sign that you want to pay attention to. In terms of treatment, you know, um, again, the athlete that I coach has had a procedure and, and things seem to be heading in the right direction. You know, how many of these issues are treatable um, through some sort of intervention or is it for, for the vast majority it is a case they just have to slow down and um, settle into a, you know, a lighter, lighter exercise, exercise regime? That's a good question. And I don't have... Um... I don't know the number of, of cases where an ablation, for instance, helps. I know that uh, for a lot of people, ablations do work. And an ablation is where they'll um, insert catheters into arteries in the groin, lace them up through and to the heart. And often what, what will happen is they'll, if it's an exercise-induced arrhythmia that you, you're having issues with, They'll try to elicit that arrhythmia while you're on the uh, surgical table mm-hmm. and locate the the source of the arrhythmia, the, the cells that are misfiring, and then the ablation will either freeze or fry, essentially, those cells trying to kill them so that they don't misfire in that same way. Mm-hmm. That can be very difficult to do with certain types of arrhythmias and not too difficult in other types of arrhythmias. It's certainly not a, 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 um, a minor procedure, however. Mm. And just to give you an example, Leonard's um, a very tall individual. He uh, 6'7", I believe. Jeepers, creepers. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, that's, he, he, his Zin Cycles is, is a, a, his bike company and it's, it's primarily for very tall people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, he, uh, he had, he went in to have an ablation and he was on the surgical table for approximately four hours where, and his is an exercise induced arrhythmia and, um, to, to try to elicit the arrhythmia, they will inject you with things that'll make your heart beat faster, um, adrenaline or caffeine or things like that. And his atrial heart rate was up to 300 beats per minute for most of those four hours trying to uh, locate this arrhythmia. And, and they, they could, but for such a short amount of time that they weren't able to freeze it, zap it. Yeah. Um, and so his ablation didn't work and uh, pharmaceutical intervention for him is not really an option because a lot of the beta blockers and things like that that might be used for treatment um, uh, suppress uh, um, they suppress heart rate and they also and blood pressure is what I was the word I was searching for there mm. and and he's super tall he's got a really low resting heart rate he's got low blood pressure so if he were to be put on these um, beta blockers, he would be at risk for fainting often, which he doesn't want mm. to have to live with either. So I know I may be getting off track, but th- there are there are definitely options out there, and ablation is something that you hear a lot about, and it does work for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, sometimes it it takes a number of attempts to fully ablate the arrhythmia, though, 
as well. So somebody might go in and six months later, they're back for another one. Um, and this, again, is not a minor procedure. So it's good to keep that in mind. Hmm. So in terms of living with um, heart-related issues, you know, you've, you've mentioned your guy Leonard there and he's um, had to adjust his life fairly significantly, obviously. Um, for, for most people, is it, is it a case of reducing intensity, reducing um, the amount of training they're doing or, or both? And is there a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of still racing, but just maybe not necessarily training quite so hard? Right. I think that for some people, um, given the type of arrhythmia they have, sorry about that. That's right. Given the given the type of arrhythmia that certain people have, they can have they can um, if they were to have a successful ablation, they could go back to fairly serious um, training and racing. Uh, other people depend. It, it, you know, I mentioned earlier how the ventricular um, arrhythmias in the ventricles are uh, much tend to be much more serious and can be life threatening. Those are much more uh, 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 life changing, and there are a few pe- people we we um, profile in the book whose lives have been um, drastically altered because of what they've gone through, and it's been extremely traumatic for them. On the other hand, talking about light at the end of the tunnel, you know, somebody like, I keep going back to Leonard because I'm just so familiar with his mm. his situation. Um, he has definitely backed off on the intensity and the volume, but he does a lot of things. He still skis a lot. He still rides a lot. He um, is very active. He just does it in a different way, and I think it took him. It, there were, it was a process to come to terms with how he needed to change his life. But he would be the first person to tell you now that he's a better person for having changed the way he lives his life, because he's a better husband. He's a better father. He he has uh, taken on new. Um, hobbies and pastimes and and um he just isn't so for lack of a better word obsessed with training and racing and i think i certainly don't want to criticize how anybody leads their life because we all love to do this stuff and a lot of us love to do it a lot um but you know sometimes you just it, it's not a bad thing to sit back and ask yourself if you know if you're not a professional athlete do you really need to be training this hard pushing yourself this hard are there other things you could be doing and on top of all of that we all know how um how hot a topic overtraining is these days and i think a lot of new science is proving that a lot of people are 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 training way more than they need to you could be improving your performance by resting more often hmm. so that's something else to consider i think that's probably a really good theme that i think has come out of our discussion is is especially for you know people who are going pretty hard at it um, for, for long periods of the year is, is the importance of having breaks, of having easier days, of periodizing your training so you are having easier weeks. And as you said, you know, that's probably going to lift your performance by being a little bit fresher and also give your, uh, give your heart a bit of a break as well. So um, t- tell us, 
anything else you want to get across about the book um, and obviously where it's available? Yeah, it's um, it's available at a lot of online bookstores, at least in the U.S. It's also available at, at, at um, cycling shops, running shops, triathlon shops, mm. Amazon.com, VeloPress.com is the publisher and, and you can get it there as well. Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a fascinating project that we've undertaken. I think we did a, a really pretty good job of of conveying a lot of complex issues with our book. There are some things that are uh, just uh, truly fascinating about how the heart works in the book and how much it's beating, how hard it's working. It never gets a rest, whether you're sleeping or uh, doing a massive block of intervals. It's, it's always beating. Um, and you really need to pay attention to your, your body. You need to listen to, um, it's, it's warning signs as well as it's signals that it's trying to give you to be the best athlete that you can be and also a healthy person. Um, something we didn't really touch upon I don't think we're some of the other like exercise addiction. We do cover exercise addiction in the book when, when training becomes uh, a much more serious problem and, and, and you'd be surprised at how often that, that happens. We, I don't know what it's uh, where, you know, you've got listeners probably all over the world. Mm. Probably a lot of them know that Boulder is a, is a epicenter for, endurance athletes. So we here are dealing with this issue quite a bit right now. You know, there's a lot of um, elite athletes here that are dealing with issues. There's a lot of friends of ours that are dealing with heart issues. And um, it, it, it it's uh, very interesting to sort of understand exercise addiction when it becomes a, a, a almost a clinical issue and how that bears on the development of arrhythmias. Mm, fantastic. And what about yourself, Chris? Are you, uh, your, your, your Skype picture here has you running up some bloody set of uh, wooden rails with your cyclocross <laughs> bike on, on your back. You know, what, what do you get up to? And that's a point that I want to make as well, is all the authors of this book are active athletes themselves. It's not people out there trying to scaremonger or anything like that. Um, you're actually all out there you know, doing sport and doing endurance sport as well. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, we definitely do not want to come across as being alarmists in any way. Exercise is the best medicine. It's a wonderful thing for mind and body. We don't want to discourage people to stop ex or we don't want to stop people from exercising. But we definitely want them to understand um, a little bit more about what might be too much. So. I personally have raced bikes, um, road, mountain, cyclocross for about 12 years, I guess, at a pretty high level. Cyclocross has kind of become my major uh, focus these days. Uh, we've got a very big cyclocross scene in the United States and particularly in Boulder. And uh, yeah, it's just... Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of back road gravel and dirt riding in Colorado as well. So, I uh, I still ride a lot. I do rest a lot. I've I've I definitely 
have changed my mindset a bit after writing this book and learning all the things. Um, but I still compete. Uh, Leonard, unfortunately, you know, with his condition, he can't really compete anymore. And interestingly enough, the doctor, the mm-hmm. electrophysiologist, John Mandrola, he also has AFib. Um, so he is not only someone who knows from a research perspective a lot about this, but he's he's dealt with it on a personal level. So mm. it was a good crew to, to put this book together. On a, on a side topic there, cyclocross is picking up in New Zealand and I know all around the world. What's the appeal for you in cyclocross as opposed to mountain biking? You know, um, I grew up as a runner. So there's a bit of running in cyclocross, which I feel is kind of a strength just from my background. Uh, the intensity of and short duration of cyclocross is seems to fit well with my physiology. Yeah. So I'm pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah, nice. I, I uh, and and honestly, um, yeah, it's just a faster, more fun racing scene in Colorado than than is mountain biking but I still love mountain biking as well so fantastic awesome and oh that was fantastic guys so again the book's called The Haywire Heart um, we'll have links to it on uh, the show notes on the website but you also just plug that into Google or go to Amazon Press anywhere and you can pick up your copy get yourself well educated and uh, look after yourself so Chris thanks so much for your time absolutely thanks for having me so, John, I haven't actually listened to the interview yet. Yep, we need to slow down, Bevan. Really? Yeah. I think the cool thing about this interview is it's they're not trying to be scaremongering. They're athletes themselves, the guys that are authors of this book, as you will have heard. Uh, but I think for, for the long-term athletes that just go 12 months a year, every year, for year after year after year after year, it sounds like should really be taking a bit of notice of this. So I think it's just a good message for all of us is to make sure you periodize your weeks, periodize your seasons, and make sure you have some downtime and let your body recover. So don't go seven days a week. You know, make sure you've got a, an easier day in there. Make sure every three or, four, three or four weeks you've got an easier week and make sure when you've done and dusted for your season that you're going to be chilling out a bit. Make sure when you get really, you know, you get sick that you don't just try to be a hard ass and train through it. And those are sort of, I think, the messages that they want to get across. They're saying don't stop exercising. You don't need to stop racing, participating. But if you have been going hardcore for a long time, you just need to make sure you focus on a bit of rest. So uh, it's good good stuff. And if you want to find out more about this, guys, go and check out The Haywire Heart. Plug that in anywhere. You should be able to find the book, but you can get it from all those places that Chris also mentioned. It's hard for people like us, because we love doing it. We do. But it's just about making sure. Yeah, I think for, for the likes of you and I, you know, we do have that downtime. You're going on holiday for a while, and you know, you so you're going to have four weeks where, yeah, you're still going to exercise, but you're not yeah, going to be crazy. going at you know 100% FTP stuff every day. The one thing that I think is really important is to not have guilt associated with downtime, because yeah. for a lot of people, you know, exercise is their esteem, and so to not exercise is almost I'm a bad person. And like for example, I know we're in real time now, but I was in Taiwan last week, and you know, I've been training for a marathon, and, and even going up to this point, it was kind of like get ready for a marathon, and then after Taiwan, just chill, and. Mm. uh and I, I, I did bugger all exercise. Well, I had to do a little bit of work, but it was like, you know what? Enjoy the downtime. And I think it's a really important aspect of it as well. Mm. Okay, sponsor John, athlinks.com. Get your rival set up, people. It's a cool way where you can actually compare your progress on 
across all the years if you've got people that are set up as rivals. So all you do is just search for people that you know, click on the plus follow them and then they'll show up in your rivals list and you can see all the different races you've done against them. So I've got people like Phil and Bevan and, and other people who I've raced a number of times and you can see your win-loss record against them or if you beat them all the time, what the, the gap is between you so if you've got someone that you've just been chipping away at uh, you might think how close have I been getting and it might be going from half an hour to 20 minutes to 10 minutes to 5 minutes so get on there get your rivals set up as long as the other people are on there it should work a treat so just find them click on the follow and then uh, you can have your rivals and check your progress or also check your rear vision mirror to see who's coming up from behind and it is, it is, a, it is a motivator oh yeah if you've got your training buddies and you know you can see what they're doing, and you know, pick it up, and we're gonna give you a bit of <laughs> the old nudge, nudge. How's your father? How's your father? <laughs> then uh, yeah, so there you go. So athletics.com. If you haven't checked it out, make sure you check out your rivals. And just maybe with your own club, that's a good idea to do within your club. Set up your rivals as well because it's a cool way of doing it. John, we're going to an interview of Chris Henley coming up, and he is a strength and coordinating coordination coach, and he does a lot of work with triathletes. So here it is right now. Okay, Tim, we're very happy to have Chris Hendy on the show today. He's, he's got the website strengthforendurance.com. Is it .com.au or just .com? .com. .com, he's got the .com, he's got it all going for him. Uh, welcome to the show. Thanks, uh, Bevan, thanks, thanks for having me on. So maybe before we kind of get too much into the strength for endurance stuff, maybe just tell me a little bit about your background. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, okay, I've been a sort of strength and conditioning coach now for almost 10 years, um, working a lot with very varying degree of athletes um me and my wife moved across from the uk about five years ago moved over to australia and found ourselves in byron bay and nice. uh not a bad spot yeah not a bad spot and then we uh yeah, we settled down pretty quickly um i found work almost immediately within the, in the local gyms and uh my wife um she actually went from she was she's always been in, into endurance sports um she's doing modern modern pentathlon back in the uk and then she or pony club and then she uh, she transitioned into triathlon um, just before we can move over here, and then she she fell in with the Aeromax team about five years ago. She fell in with some of the the, the top top boys and girls um, in the local area up here in Lennox, Lennox and Byron. And then so she fell into full time training with them, and I said my I was I was full time work, and uh, yeah, we've been working within the endurance community ever since. So um, yeah, it's been it's been a, it's been a good run so far. So so before that time, what kind of people were you mainly working with? Well, I I grew up in I, I saw I grew up playing a lot of team sports, so um, inline hockey, very similar to ice hockey. I grew up yeah. playing that. Um, pretty much that was that was my life for the first well since I was about ten. But I I had a, a bit of martial arts background, judo, and then I went into rugby, basketball, your classic kind of school sports. And then yeah, the hockey took over my life from pretty much my from my whole teenage life and that allowed me to sort of travel all over Europe and America and Canada um got, got, got allowed me to sort of travel the world um and then from there that passion took me to university sports science degree um studies as a teacher and um yeah that's literally just sort of does this transition through through that process in the sporting world and ended up um you know but here working with the endurance community so I've got a, I've got a very like, sort of my sporting background is very much team sports but because of the social community I work in, or the people I surround myself with now, I'm very much endurance-based. Yeah. Now, now if, <clears throat> if we think about the areas of endurance sport, particularly triathlon, uh, you know, most people are going to spend a lot of time doing swim, bike, run, uh, and 
and they tend to neglect some other areas of their training. Strength and conditioning is, is obviously one of those areas that sometimes gets neglected. What are some of the problems you see with triathletes because they don't put some foundation work around strength and conditioning? Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an interesting one to bring up because when that was when we first sort of moved here, we got, got working with a lot of the athletes, and they just started asking me lots of questions. You know, like how can they work on certain areas? You know, they had fundamental issues where you know they lack of they've been told a number of times glute activation. Mm-hmm. Lower back pain, uh, neck pain. You know, from poor. You know, from, and for me, obviously, it was a, not an easy fix, but it was just quite. It was quite an easy one to see. There was just poor posture, um, a lack of activation in certain muscle groups. So, literally, we started just working a little, little and often with some of the athletes, and um, just showing them a few basic exercises they could they could be performing. But really, was uh, looking first and foremost at their mobility, their movement. Um, a lot of them had poor mobility. Um, and so that was probably one of the first things we started to address and get them moving better on a regular basis. And then we started to uh, implement exercises, some real simple exercises. But yeah, I mean, with endurance athletes, it's very much about looking at their movement first, looking, you know, trying to improve their movement. They're in, if they're in those fixed positions or they're in that fixed state in you know, three different uh, elements, especially in triathlon. Mm. And when they fixed, and so for me, it was very much about just simply getting them moving better and more often. And then starting to implement some exercises where they're activating more, more those dormant muscle groups and then beginning to bring in those strength and stability exercises. So that's kind of a formula that I always follow with all with everyone I work with, especially endurance-based, whether they're running, swimming, cycling, or all three. And in each of the movements, are there common faults you see or is it, is it so individual? You know, like what, what are some of, like within each of the movements, what are some of the common things you do see? Uh, hips, so cyclists and runners, it's, it's hip mobility. I mean, they have, it's incredible, it's incredible over the years what you've, what people can endure and what people can live with, you know, on a day to day basis. And, you know, we're talking about range of motion that's so limited that you see some athletes I work with who are, you know, I see, I see better movement in 60 year olds, you know, because they've, they've, all they've simply done is they've just pushed and pushed and pushed their bodies. And, you know, they're used to doing that and they, you know, they can get the, they get the work done, but at what cost? And mm. so, and sometimes it's just that lack of a, lack of knowledge and not knowing what, what they could be doing just to bring into their tra- weekly training program to help them. So for them, most of the time, it's just getting them into a good movement routine. So cyclists and runners, very much their hips, hips and lower, lower limb. I mean, um, posture is a, a one for all of us. We're always looking at trying to improve upper, you know, upper back um, mobility, um, you know, anything, any sort of rotations we can get going, going and pulling their shoulders back, back into better positions. We all sit. We all sit too much, so we, you know it's. Um, we just we, we lack glute strength. We lack. We have all, but we all suffer from poor posture. So they're, they're key elements that actually we, you, I pretty much expect all all of them to have. Um, it's just that some are more more than others. You know, depending on how much volume they're doing during the week or how long they've been living like that for. You know, 20, dealing with athletes who have been doing it for 20, 30 years, sitting on a bike, maybe 10, 15 hours a week. You know, their bodies are going to be very interesting to watch when you when you get them in a gym setting. Do you find much resistance? You know, one of the, the downfalls of the endurance athlete is that they always think more is better, um, mm. and and they tend to think that if I'm not swimming bike running, I'm kind of wasting my time. Do you find that um, you get resistance to people trying to add strength to work into their routine, or or a lack of commitment, or once people understand it, are they pretty good? Yeah, there's, and there's, a, there's an incredible amount of misconceptions around strength training. You know, that it's a it's a very broad term, yeah. and unfortunately, a lot a lot of things come underneath come underneath that umbrella, um, and that's and that's led to a lot of misconception. So, you know, as soon as you mention that word, you know, strength training, they think, unfortunately, 
not to, to jump to the conclusion, but a lot of people think it's barbells, heavyweights, mm. and mm. and it's nothing to do with. I mean, that's that's later on down the road. But to start with, any good strength program is going to be looking at the, you know human movement, you know how looking identifying your strengths and weaknesses and addressing those. So I mean, so for for most endurance community, actually, it's nothing to do with lifting weight to start with. It's actually just simply improving improving the human movement, improving their so their efficiency. So that's kind of one of the first things I, I talk to people about is forget weights let's think about when we're talking about strength training think about improving your efficiency improving your efficiency as an athlete um because yeah they are a lot of roadblocks when it comes to strength training you know there is the fourth it will be the fourth or fifth thing they think about during their week where unfortunately for a lot of age groupers i work with if they were to hone hone down on their own physical performance and on their own physique and on their own body and actually go, okay, let's start addressing some of those strengths and weaknesses, let's, specifically those weaknesses, the stronger those weaknesses become, the more effective and efficient their body is going to be. Mm. So when they go out on that road or on that run or on that swim, they're going to work more efficient, you know, efficiently. You know, so you know the better range of motion in their joints, more more effective, you know, more um, efficient muscle groups, just just going to perform much better as machines. So, yes. There are a lot of roadblocks, but it's how you term it, and it's taken oh, it's taken five years so far for me to even become somewhat of a, a voice um, a voice in the community. Um, and I've just been lucky enough to work with a lot of guys and girls who who are who are pretty good. So uh, it, it allows my voice to be a little bit louder than others. Do um do, so so let's say you are someone who comes to you and. Um, you know, you do some assessment. What kind of work will you do with, the, with someone? Let's say it's a new person. It's been in the sport for a long time. You know, has some probably traditional problems around hip and, and the rest of it. Um, what kind of what kind of programming are they going to get, and how, what kind of time frames would they want to be incorporating into their training week? Yeah, yeah, good question. Um, first and foremost, you got to kind of you find out obviously what they're about, what what they're they're weekly, who they are as a person. I mean, that's what we do as trainers anyway. You sit them down, you find out the, the whole picture. You know, the stresses in their life, the work, the social. You know, the, what's incredible is how much people can put, pack into their week, and that's mm. always going to have that's always going to be a variable as to what you can give give them. You know, the, that volume, that stress load. So, understanding what type of work they do, are they sat behind a desk? Are they physical? Are they are they is it a physically demanding job? So are they lifting a lot, moving a lot? But then when you get them into a gym, it's a classic movement screen of some sort. So you're, there's, there's different ways of going about it. But end of the day, you're looking, you need to take them through a, a series of physical testing, um, getting them moving in front of you. And you're just looking at where they're, are they able to bend over, touch their toes? Are they able to sort of bend, bend full range of the knees, the hips? So they've got full rotation. So you're just looking for those key areas, you know, do they have full rotation in the shoulders? Just looking at all the major joints and muscle groups and seeing what works, what doesn't work, and what where where that free range of motion is. And then, then from there, you start to paint, begin to paint a picture of what what this person needs most and what's going to benefit them most. Once you've got that, then you can start to piece together a program. And that program, predominantly for a full-time triathlete or even an age grouper who's worked doing 15, 20 hours, I generally prescribe two to two to three sessions a week, about 30 to 45 minutes of work, and you, you're looking to slot that in you know throughout the week but you know to to you know to create any sort of change you definitely need to be um adaptation or you need to be at least training two or three times a week you mm. know so yeah so mobility understanding that how that person moves identifying those weaknesses because we've all got them most of the time it's going to be some sort of single side weakness mm. whether it's leg or arm 
And then we, st- you know, then you start to work on them. Um, you start to work on them, and that's through band work, that's activation work. Then it's going into sort of say basic strength exercises, um, and just taking it from step by step. But yeah, as I said, it always starts with paint. You got to find out what that person is, who that person is in front of you, because there's so many variables to take into consideration in this day and age. You know, like with how people are, you know, exist families well, and stuff. Well, it's a really important point you bring up is that you know nowadays we can get so many workouts for free. If you know what I mean, like you can get an app, you can get go to YouTube, um, but there's no specificity to you or in that. And so, you know, to go to see somebody who can actually look at you and say, "Here's where your problem is." And let's design a program that's specific to your needs is, is such an important thing, especially for an athlete who is putting high demands on their body. Um, you know, it, it is one of the problems nowadays is that because access to information is so free, it's almost a downfall because we're not necessarily getting the right information for us. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, there is so much information now. We're, we're aware of it. In, in all industries, there's so much information you can get. Um, unfortunately, it's, over, it's overwhelming and there's so much that, you know, and what you're seeing is you're seeing athletes, you know, I, I see people in the gym all the time who are, they're just jumping from machine to machine, you know, or they're jumping from exercise to exercise and they're going at high intensities and they're never really focusing on what, what's best for them, you know, mm. the most effective. And actually what you find is, especially within like, endurance-based athletes who are going, going, going all the time anyway, you know, they're at full, they're at full tilt most of the week. The strength training, whether it's in a gym or at home, it needs to be a much more, uh, precise and more slow paced work you know you're looking at trying to refine your body you're trying to target certain areas that are weak or you know that you're fundamentally weak at and and so yeah as you, as you say when there's there's lots of um exciting <laughs> workouts available to us out there you know lots of, of high intensity it, it's actually can dismantle and pull apart an athlete much quicker than a good strength program but simply but on the basis that that athlete's coming to you already putting in maybe 15 or 20 hours of work already Mm. those these particular strength exercises for an endurance athlete they need to be more focused and more you know, developing more structurally you know to developing their structural the structure of their joints instead of just trying to get fitness out of them because that's the difference it's not a lot of the time we need to be training their bodies not just uh, exercising their bodies because they're already getting the the uh training but they're already getting that work done during the week when they hit their strength when they're working their strength work they need to be honing down on their weaknesses and making their strengths so, mm. yeah. so, so that we approach these types of workouts as a quality session that's really specific to my needs, not an intense session where I'm just trying to blast myself. Yeah, yeah, it's not just trying to worry about work done. You're thinking, okay, what what am I looking to achieve out of this work? You know, this these, these two sessions a week. There should, I mean, everyone's going to have a focus. Whether it's just basic mobility, I'm just improving the, my, the, my, the way I the way I move in the water. You know, simple working on your shoulder mobility is going to make you roll better in the water. It's going to make you pull better in the water. I mean, hip mobility, you're going to be able to lift your knees and you're going to be able to drive better on the run, on the bike. You know, it's just those simple things, that mechanics, that, that's what they should be focusing on. When, when Then we start looking at activation and then you're looking at that strength, that strength work. But I always talk about these three elements, but it's, it's just such a very simple three steps that you can take to start really sort of those logical steps that you can take to improving your performance. Now you you work with some pro athletes, don't you? Yeah, 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 a few, yeah. So, so when you're working, what's the difference you experience working with an age grouper and a pro athlete? Fatigue. Um, oh, no, really? Just, really? No, it's, no it's, it's, sometimes it can be. You know, so if you're in the middle of a, like an iron, oh, both, I suppose for both it can be, but a lot of the time, um, that's it. That's the, probably the, one of the most important things about having a coach. I think it's it's understand how, when you're working with any type of athlete, but is you can especially as a strength training coach, like when I was a strength and conditioning coach, I 
you know, an athlete might come into me, into the gym, and they'll have that glassy stare, that thousand mile stare, kind of. <laughs> and, you, and you just know, like, no matter what, you know, that, and that person shouldn't be, that, that person needs to be resting, you know, they need to be recovering. Um, and so what, what best suits, what's going to best suit that athlete at that time? And, and this happens for age groupers too, because, they, you know, they go through these huge blocks. Um, and it's about, you know, okay, well, what's the best thing for this person? It's, it's going to be moving, you know, getting some, doing some basic movement work, some basic activation work. And that's still strength training. You know, that still comes under this banner of strength training. Um, but it's, it's just improving your efficiency, but you're not overloading your body. So with the, the pro athletes, a lot of the time, it's just a lot of the time it's really refining their mechanics. Because a lot of the time they're already working at that. They're, they're already working at that high percentage. They're mm. already where they need to be. They're looking for that 1%. And that one percent can often come through just feeling better in their own bodies, um, and being, you know, and it just comes from feeling fresher and just knowing their bodies firing on all cylinders, and that can just come from moving better. So a couple of the guys I work with, we we do have ongoing programs with them, but a lot of the time it can just be working on real basic mechanics. We're going sort of fifty percent with our with the weights that we're using, and we really are just focusing on just good mechanics um, and just making sure those key areas are, are firing, and working. So. Do do um, what about the strength training? Now, I can't imagine doing like bloody hardcore bodybuilding level of um, intensity, but does there a level of strength training that actually affects your tri training in a bad way? Oh, it can do. Obviously, it can do. You can go it's like any sort of training. You can go if you can push yourself too hard, and so there has to be a balance. You know, I mean, as an endurance athlete, your primary focus is you know the endurance sport so with so say for instance it's triathlon so that that is your focus so um in terms of intensity it has to be measured it definitely has to be measured so when you're start when you're starting out you've got to you know you've got to start off a, a very not a low intensity but you do have to start smart um so those first moving well activating well and then just moving through those moving through those movements performing well at a low rate a low reps uh low weight and then you, but you don't get me wrong. You do build those weights up, um, but you've you've certainly got to you've got to have a much more measured approach because yes, it can have especially in the first, if you're first if you're jumping straight into a strength program um, early on, then yeah, you can it can have obviously this, um, you can get some soreness obviously just because we're, all we're simply doing is through stimulating muscle muscle we're going to be forcing our body to engage muscles that it hasn't used before. And so your body's going to, a simple reaction is to be a little bit tender and a little bit sore. But that's something that dissipates very quickly, you know, basically a couple of weeks, as I'm sure you're, you're aware. Yeah. But um, yeah, you've just got a measured approach like you would with anyone. I mean, that, that approach doesn't change for, you know, it doesn't, it's not specific to an endurance athlete. It's, it's for, for everyone you work with, you know, any good coach. Unfortunately, like any, any, again, like any industry, there's a lot of uh, trainers out there that want to sort of impress you on their first day. Mm. And you know, they want to they make sure that you're happy with your workout. And there is a certain uh, perception that your first workout needs to smash you. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's what actually breaks my heart a lot is when you speak to a lot of athletes and coaches. Um, and you say, oh, you know, uh, this is what I do and this is how I'd like to help you. And they say, oh, yeah, we tried that. You know, they, uh, we, we tried strength training. And you're like, oh, right. Okay, so that, you know, straight away you're thinking, well, you've obviously had a bad experience. You know, you've obviously had mm. someone that's got hold of you and driven, you know, just smashed you like anyone could do it really, you know. And um, as an offset, you know, they've they've kind of stepped away from it and never looked back. And um, it's unfortunate because it's actually the crutch of or any good athlete is developing that strength and stability. So, yeah. 
with regards to you're saying, you know, to get kind of two sessions in a week around 30 to 45 minutes long based on the needs of your body is probably going to, have, well, it is going to have so much value to your overall endurance life. Where, where would you put those sessions in a week based on, you know, if you're if you're your typical triathlete, you're probably doing, you know, three bikes, maybe two or three runs, a couple of swims. Where, where, if you, and you maybe have a few A sessions, B sessions and so on. Where would you try to put those sessions in to be most effective for your strength work, but also not to affect the A sessions of your week. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. As you say, there's there is a kind of a, there is a there is a standard blueprint. You know, that's a it comes it comes across with most of the athletes. They do have those those sort of um, big efforts, long efforts, more intense efforts. But when it comes to strength training, that's the key being that it's the, the type of training that we're doing and the time that it takes. So thirty to forty five minutes working through four or five key exercises. Yeah. And they, and because of that time frame, then that can that generally can slot in. Um, so doing a session, a hard you know, a session in the morning, then that could be an evening. A strength session could be an evening session. You're, if you've got key sessions during the week, which everyone does have, they have to be your. That, that that's without doubt, they are your sessions because mm-hmm. you're you know that's what you're about. But if you slotting in two strength two strength training for, um, sessions a week, then I'll be looking at slotting that other morning or afternoon. So you know nine to ten hours apart from your main session yeah. um a lot of my athletes do it on the monday and friday sometimes that, that might be their rest day um but you know that depending on the program that they're currently on that just might be they might go into the gym and they're just moving so it's almost like an active recovery so um yeah mondays and fridays a lot of the time of the sessions that we, we we put in for them and uh yeah as i said even the, even the work they're doing then it's a form of active recovery um but if it's a proper strength session and they're looking to hit some real numbers, then I would say morning of or evening of, you know, wherever those gaps are. So, um, and more importantly, if you, you're trying to try and hit it before, if you are going to back to back, then that's where that less is more. So, if you know, if you are going to go back to back with a session, so for instance, you're going to do a gym session, then you're going to jump in the water, um, then I would certainly say, okay, great mobility work do some active activation work and then do one or two key strength exercises don't overdo it mm. but work work on those fundamentals work on the, and then then jump in the water because i do know that people you know who are time poor which we all are um if they are looking to go back to back and try and bring it all together strength before endurance so get that strength work done so you're working more efficiently in the water yeah there is a little bit of pre-fatigue but you will over the overall picture you will be a better athlete for it, so. In regards to periodization with the strength work, in regards to you know how people are working towards the A goal for the year, so if let's say I'm doing Ironman Kens in a few weeks from now, um, you know like what what is happening with your strength work in line with where you are within your triathlon program? Yeah, so periodization. When I first got into this, I was you know I was all over it. You know, like you're planning it with everyone and you're kind of uh, laying it down in. In, in, in weekly blocks and, and monthly blocks, and then you kind of get, begin to realise that actually the triathlon community are—they uh, don't really have much of an off-season. You know, no, there's not, no, there's not much of, and so this whole you know getting them into a maintenance phase and a building phase and a pre—and and you realise actually, well, it's, the, the lines are really blurred, um, really, really blurred. So there's a two percent difference either side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because if they're not running a triathlon, they might be running a goal. You know, right, be jumping into the goal. You know, because for instance, we've got cans coming up, yeah. and then. I've got a couple of athletes who are then going to be, yeah, they're fancy running the Gold Coast Marathon. So yeah. they're going to be jump, jumping into that. And then, you know, they've got something else. And then, lo and behold, it's, we're up in, we're up in the Sunshine Coast. So yeah. it's, it, there's no real gap. So 
when we start out, yes, I mean, we very much, we try to, we set them up. I and mean, if they've got a key race, say, a couple of people are coming up, they've got WA end of the year. And so we can really set them down and work out what smaller races they might be doing prior to that. And we can sort of build them up into that, into those phases. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's an interesting one to bring up because it's, it's just not as simple as that because we're always having to take into consideration everyone's, um, all the races come before that, leading up to that. But yeah, no, it's something that we definitely consider. Um, but it's, yeah, as I said, it, it's, it's not as easy as that. We kind of, maintenance is very much probably the key thing we look for. We build them up to a certain point and then we look to maintain that. And then when we do have those week, uh, those four, five, six weeks where we, we're not competing, then we can start to bring in, bring in and ramp it up a little bit. Yeah. But again, it can't be for too long because again, we don't want it to impact, you know, we bring in impact, um, impact their performance too much at the, at the other end. But generally you get them into a point where they're, they're working consistently and, and then we get them, we ramp it up at certain points during the year, depending on who that individual is and what they're looking to do. Well, what are some of the biggest barriers you come against? Oh, uh, just the classic misconceptions. I mean, the biggest one when we talk to, when you talk about strength training, unfortunately we live in a world where bodybuilding and Arnold Schwarzenegger and everything, you know, the whole, this is that, you know, he's, he's a, he's a great man, but he obviously, his name is way too, way too popularized. And so for instance, and you know, obviously in my community, it's, he's a, he's a, he's a hero, but his name is thrown around way too much in, um, endurance world. You know, everyone, everyone, everyone knows who he is. And, and what does that bring? That brings an image of massive, a massive man, you know, and it's nothing. What obviously it goes against everything that an endurance athlete is striving for. So, the misconceptions of strength training are probably the hardest thing that we're, you know, the, 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 what we're battling the most. And it's something that the world is definitely shifting. Um, you know, I talk to coaches on a daily basis all up and down the coast and, you know, they're aware, they're aware of the benefits of strength training. They just, a lot of the time, they don't know how to start implementing it because mm. there's too much information out there. There's too much, there's too much, uh, too much information. So we've got to, and that's, that's what the strength for endurance, uh, strength for endurance network's about. What what we set up, um, and it's a network of trainers across the country that are endurance based strength coaches. Okay. So we all have a we have a strength, we're strength trainers that have endurance um, have endurance experience. So whether they're ex athletes, uh, they're coaches themselves, but they've all got sort of physiology based uh, backgrounds. You know, they're personal trainers, they're strength and conditioning coaches, but. We're trying to make the world smaller. So, for instance, if you're an endurance athlete, we're very much about trying to get get you in front of an, an a, a strength trainer or a personal trainer that actually understands mm. what you what you're going through. You know, as a, on a weekly week weekly week week basis. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, 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 tell, so, so the website is um, strengthforendurance.com. So, tell us about the site. Um, so, strength for endurance came about. Um, we, as I said, it was a network of trainers originally. Well, we, we, because I have a number of athletes that kind of move around, move around the world, and so we we're linking up with certain. I wanted to make sure that the athletes are being looked after wherever they went. So, for instance, Boulder, Colorado, Erin um, Carson at Rally Sport. She she works with a lot of like Miranda Carefrey and Tim O'Donnell and some of the big hitters out there. And I had a couple of guys heading out there for their training blocks, and we needed to make sure. I wanted to make sure that they were being looked after. So got in contact and say, hey, this is the program he's on. I need I need you to babysit him, you know, make sure he's yeah. doing it, <laughs> you know, just make sure he's hitting his ABCs. And, and uh, this is Tim Burkle and Tim, and Tim was, and Tim was hit it and uh, she took him under his wing and 
you know, it's it's it made things very easy. But Strength for Endurance Network is very much about uh, connecting people with the right people. So mm-hmm. it, you know, we're bringing people together. And what we started doing now is we have a Strength for Endurance kit, which is it allows people. It just it gives you a couple of um, pieces of equipment, resistance bands. Um, uh, suspension trainer and the right programming, basic programming that can get you going at home. Um, yeah. And so we, we're running clinics up and down the coast. Um, we're work going to the actual coach. So for instance, yourself, or we might, we'll ring you up and say, hey, we're running a clinic. We'd like to come to where you train and we'll show you how simple and easy it is to get going with some real simple, basic um, and effective strength training. So mobility, activation uh, and strength exercises. So we're and with it, um, is, is it mainly Australia-based at the moment? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So we, it's, uh, we're traveling up and down the coast at the moment, just working with clubs and athletes. Um, we are we are reaching across the, reaching across to America. We got you know, see, we've got we've got connections over there now with great coaches. I mean, there's great coaches working with great athletes over there. And as I said, the information out there, it's already out there. You know, the education's out there. It's just getting it, getting it to the getting it to the athletes and getting yeah. it to the coaches in the right format. Um, and it's, it is specific to the endurance athlete because they are, they are a unique, yeah, a unique, unique type of life. We're a niche audience. Well, you know, you know, like we are a specific bunch. And so I suppose yeah. the, the question I have is obviously this is something that um, our listeners could go to and check out and, you know, get some foundation, some thinking around this. And obviously in Australia, it's really good, but uh, would would you want personal trainers in that from overseas to get in contact with you to maybe build relationships further abroad? Very much so. Yeah, I mean, we're always, <laughs> oh, you know, I'm always learning. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm a lifelong student. I'll always be learning, and I'm I'm always pretty much exciting thing is about the, the, the work we do is that you get to work with athletes and coaches from all different walks of life. And you, you know, and so any, I, I love having conversation with anyone, you know, and learning more about how we can improve the athlete. And there's there's multiple different ways of doing that. I mean. Just from what we've learned over the over the last couple of years of talking to different trainers up and down the coast, it's it's been awesome for myself, my own personal development. Because you know, I have a method of a way of doing things, you know, because that's the way I've learned, and I'm comfortable in certain situations, certain environments. But what I've learned is there's so many different other ways as well. You know, there's not you know like we talk about movement. You know, um, it could be something you know, it could be yoga based, it could be Pilates based, it could be you know, it, there's so many different ways of attacking um, and improving our bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I say it's not one size fits all, but it all comes under this umbrella of strength training and developing human, you know, improving human performance. So, um, going back to the whole PTs, yes, very much so strength coaches, PTs, anyone that's working with endurance athletes and improving their performance, we'd love to hear, you know, hear what they're about and how they're doing it. Um, you know, and their methods, because often, more often than not, we're all following a very simple method- methodology, you know, looking at mechanics. Mm. How, how someone moves identifying those weaknesses and then working on them you know that's it's it, it seems like common sense but a lot of people are kind of bypassing that and just going for the the thrill or just going for like the the work yeah. and uh, just hammering stuff out where it's that's never gonna work for them so. well no i love what you're building here because the thing is you know a lot of people can go to see a pt at a gym but you know pt might not have any idea of what's really happening in our world so if you can build a network of people who have that understanding then the people in our world can get the right person beside them on their journey. And, you know, choosing the right people is a really big part of your success. And so to have something like the Strength for Endurance Network, it's, um, you know, it's a really good thing you're building there. Yeah, we, uh, it's it's just, we want to get the right information out there. As you said, right at the beginning of that, 
the chat there was saying about how much information is out there out mm. in the world and we can get it from anywhere. You can get a program from, you know, any corner of the internet and you know, you'll get one good hit out hit out of it, but it could also, you know, can be your demise. And, you know, it can be it can you know, it's the wrong it's the work in the wrong way. So I would I would always stress that you look to the basics and that's what any good strength strength coach strength conditioning coach or personal trainer will be looking for. They're looking, they'll strip you back down to your bare bones and they'll work on those fundamental issues, those fundamental basics that you need to be working on to improve your improve your performance. And that's what we're about. The strength, the in clinics that we're running are very much about delivering those fundamentals. I mean, that's, that's, so instead of just standing, sit behind a screen and saying it, or, you know, talking on the podcast, we're actually going to the coaches now. And it's, it's, it's an interesting relationship because you're phoning these coaches. I never spoke to before and saying, Hey, like we want to help you. Like we want to come to you and just show you some what we're doing. Um, and they're very receptive, you know, because they're already well aware of the benefits. They just mm. don't know how to go about it or how to implement it or what it looks like during a week or you know how they can start doing it with their athletes on a day-to-day basis. And that's what we're very much about. The, the, the clinics are just showing them those most effective exercises that they can be doing on a, on a, on a consistent basis that will change the way they perform that's for sure and live hey well the website is strengthforendurance.com just the last message is if uh, if someone's listening right now and not doing any strength work uh, what would you say to them I would say start moving moving better so find a good movement practice whether that's you know checking out what we're doing uh, over on our Facebook page or online or you just find yourself a good yoga instructor or Pilates start moving better um listen to your weaknesses so you know you're if you're aware that you're weak on certain one side start start training that side start doing some activation work and then start targeting with some real simple single leg or um full body exercises that will challenge it so uh start working on those weaknesses stop it don't ignore them because over the long haul over the long the long course they will be the things that be your downfall so work on them yeah, and one thing I'll add to that is to kind of shift the mindset that your swim bike runs all you need to do, and, and that to compromise a bit of that time to do strength work is actually going to add more value in the long term. Yeah, think efficiency. I definitely think efficient. Try and improve your efficiency as a as an athlete, and you know, train smarter, not harder. In other words, a lot. You know, that's a it's a classic little saying, but it definitely means a lot to an endurance athlete. Well, so. and, and, and lastly, we haven't really touched on this, but you know, strength is obviously good for efficiency, movement, and all the rest of it, but it's also good for injury prevention. And um, when we look at a lot of people who get injured, it's because they have really poor movement, you know, structures. And so if you can be get yourself moving better in a stronger body, then you're, you know, we can never guarantee no injury, but the, the, the percentage rate decreases, doesn't it? Oh, correct. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. We haven't really touched on it enough, but you're, through strength you're developing the structure of the joint so it's going to be a stronger joint it's, and we talk we throw a couple of key words around dur- durability you know being more durable and more resilient i mean they're, mm. the two, they're the two classic words that you have to be yeah. to be a great endurance athlete i mean you're looking to sustain an, an effort for a lot as hard as fast as possible for as short a time as possible and you've got to you know if you're pushing it you want to know that your body's strong enough to withstand those those that intensity so with building resilience is probably one of the key things that we look for, uh, and that that comes through good movement. That comes through active using everything you've got, so activating all those key areas, but then developing that structure and that, st- that strength and stability of those joints. The, the ang- and those key key areas of those ankles, knees, hips, shoulders. You know, the stronger they are, the more they're going to give you, yeah. and, and they're going to, and the more you can push them, and you know, the quicker you're going to be over the, over those distances. So yeah. And, and fingers crossed, this time injured, which means you can have consistency, which is going to give you your results. So you know, it all comes together. 
always comes together, mate. As I said, it's it, it does it's simple. When it comes to human mechanics, it's just very simple. Just improve the body, and the body will just keep on giving. So yeah, good times. Okay, the website is strengthforendurance.com. Chris, thanks for your time today, mate. And uh, you, if you want to get in contact with him, you can email him. Have you got an email on that website? Yes. Yep. Yep. Info at info at strengthforendurance.com. Okay, guys. Bye. Thanks for thanks for your time, Chris. Thanks, Ben. I normally ask you what are your thoughts and I can't give you my thoughts because I haven't seen you in yet. So I'm um, sure he was brilliant. And uh, if you want to go to his website, you actually you talk for a second. I say sponsor John Nina Popper's website. So sponsor it links. Xendurance.com. If you guys are having any sore joints, the only thing to lose is your pain. They've got joint four on Xendurance.com. It's a scientifically based formula of four proven ingredients that support the nutrition of joint synovial fluid, cartilage, and connective tissue. The unique formula has been helping to reduce discomfort in joints for over 20 years. So, guys, if if you are at that stage in life where... The joints are starting to not feel so good. Check it out. It's $33.95. Put in your promo code IAMTALK20. You'll get 20% off that. And get your body feeling good so you can keep training hard and racing hard. So check it out. Xendurance.com. Okay. And his website is strengthforendurance.com. And it's uh, you can get a free program there as well. So check it out. I'll put a link down. Me. So, John, next up we have another interview, another Legends. Valerie Silk. She is one of the original race directors of Ironman Hawaii and really transitioned the event from those very primitive early days into the 80s and when the event started to become more and more professional, prize money started coming in, the NBC coverage happened and she rode that roller coaster and did an amazing job and I just thoroughly enjoyed this interview and I hope you guys do as well. Okay, here we are. Here is Valerie Silk. Cool, right. So guys, in uh, 1978 we know the Hawaii Ironman started and we've heard from many of the winners. We've heard from the inaugural winner, Gordon Haller. We've heard from Dave Scott, Scott Tinley, Scott Molina, um, a bunch of the girls as well. But one person we haven't heard much from is the person who was involved in those very, very early years in Kona. Um, Her name's Valerie Silk and she was one of the original race directors and one of the very influential people in what our sport has become today. So welcome along to the show, Valerie. Oh, it's nice to be here, John. Thanks for the invite. So, um, uh, some people have heard you talk before, I know you've been on with Bob Babbitt, and, and they've, they will have seen your name around the traps if they've read any history of the Hawaii Ironman, um, but I'm really, I'm always interested to know how people end up in Hawaii if they weren't necessarily brought up there, so what was the, the deal with you, were you Hawaii born and bred, or did you move out there, what was the story? No, I was born and bred in Florida, St. Petersburg, Florida, where I am now, Yeah. And uh, left here um, in 1971, 72, with uh, aspirations of traveling around the world and uh, working as needed along the way and then continuing to move on. Mm-hmm. Got as far as Honolulu, ran out of money. And stopped. <laughs> and I was there for 15 years. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And- and so obviously, we're going to talk lots about the Ironman stuff. But what what were you doing before before that rolled around? What was your career, and what where was life sort of taking you? 
It, it was interesting. Um, there in Hawaii, uh, there is much wealth in Hawaii and many opportunities for working in homes, which is what I did. Yeah. Took care of a couple little girls, um, live-in situation, taking care of a couple little girls on the other side of the island, on the windward side, and then uh, moved over Honolulu side um, for about a year and a half and uh, lived in the home of a very wealthy couple right, uh, right on the ocean. Um, lovely job, lovely couple. And, uh, and then um, I was married at the time, and uh, my husband had um, aspirations to be self-employed, and he was very fitness-minded. I never was, still not. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, he, Nautilus was just coming on the scene at that time. Just and there really was no facility available to the public in Hawaii, and so um, we opened a Nautilus Family Fitness Center, which did it was hugely successful, mm-hmm. and uh, and then um, the Ironman came along. Um, I was not involved at all in the first three events; only on the periphery. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't much care for the race. <laughs> Because it was uh, really had a huge effect on the Nautilus clubs, um, and uh, took a lot of staff and time and funds uh, to help out with that race, and um, and I, I was not a fan at all. Oh, um, it wasn't until uh, after the 1980 race when I left the clubs and was looking for something to do. And the arrangement was that um, I would see what I could do with the Ironman, and um, my husband would keep the clubs. And uh, that's when I became race director and made the changes to the rules and regs and moved it off island. But John and Judy Collins were the founders and the original race directors in 78 and 79, and then Nautilus um, took over in 80. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... Uh, that was the first year of the ABC coverage. Mm-hmm. 79 was a Sports Illustrated coverage, which, which uh, inspired the ABC coverage. So, so it, it, those first couple of years, I know you said you were on the periphery um, and, and you weren't too fond of the event, <laughs> but did it, did it gain any, you know, was it, was it seen by locals or was it still I mean I know that first time was was tiny and probably nobody knew it was going on but um yeah what what sort of how did the the event unravel in those first couple of years from from an outsider's point of view well I was very much an outsider and my point of view is it was never going to go anywhere um I just could not understand why anyone would abuse themselves in that way and who cared anyway yeah. So I couldn't understand all the effort that went into not only training for participating in, but um, organizing the event. Yeah. It was hugely expensive. It was draining on everybody involved, including the athletes, yeah. and it made no sense to me. Yeah. So, uh, but after '78, um, there it caught the attention of Sports Illustrated. Yeah. And they were there in '79, and um, I don't think they intended to do much of an article. But they ended up doing quite a feature article. Yeah, um, I'm keen to really talk about that a bit a bit later on. So, so in terms of your your involvement when you actually came on board, maybe talk us through 
what what the event was sort of like um, in terms of participation numbers and how how you came about actually becoming the race director and, and where you were planning on taking the event. Well, seventy eight and seventy nine, uh, both of those years um, had only fifteen people in the event, twelve finishers each year. Mm-hmm. Seventy nine was the first woman uh, in Lynn Lemaire mm-hmm. to show up. Um, I hope I'm remembering correctly. It's been a, it's been a long time ago. I was in. I was only. I was in my late twenties then. I'm in my oh, wow. mid sixties now. So yeah. you know, it's. I'm I'm stretching the the noggin here. But um, in eighty, the numbers jumped up to. Let's see, it went from fifteen the first two years to a hundred and eight. I think it was in 1980 when ABC covered it because the Sports Illustrated article had a huge impact. Yeah, yeah. And and so um, were you going into it cold? I mean, I know you'd had the periphery experience, but did the event basically get handed over to you and they said, Valerie, it's yours, you do what you want to do with it, or you have, did you have people still on the, the side sort of telling you what you should and shouldn't be doing, or did you take over ownership from, from that day on really? Well, uh, it's it's sort of a strange mixture of things. I decided it was something I wanted to do. I happened to be at that particular time in my life interested in organizing something primarily that would have uh, an impact on the lives of people. I wanted wanted to do something that would make a difference in the lives of people. Mm -hmm. So I always saw the Ironman less as a race and much, 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 much more as a vehicle to accomplish something greater than just an athletic event. Mm. So that seemed to give me the venue to do that. So what I did, having I knew nothing. I knew nothing about anything. <laughs> so I started talking to swimmers and bikers and runners, started exploring other possible venues on other islands because it became clear that Honolulu was not going to uh, provide a suitable venue anymore because yeah. the race was clearly going to grow and we had individual support crews at that time which were going to have to be abandoned mm-hmm. um, couldn't clog the roads and so ended up on uh, the big island and looked at a couple different options there and just it, it was it was wonderful how every step of the way I kept meeting people who were enthusiastic about helping um, knowledgeable, way beyond what I could ever believe, and and just quality, quality skilled people, and they helped me. They were able to guide me at every step of the way. Nice, because at, at that stage, <clears throat> triathlon was still a, a very oddball sport. It was not like if if someone wanted to run a triathlon these days. There'd be, you know, 20 race directors you could go and talk to. So I guess it was still very much learning how to do it all. And and I understand initially when you went to Kona, you were thinking about going sort of the, the opposite direction towards uh, Volcano. <laughs> Till I was uh, talked out of that wisely by several people who knew that was going to be disastrous. That would have been an epic bike ride. It, it would have been, especially since there would be so many bikers on the road after dark, uh, riding alongside mountain mountain road, yeah. off, sailing off cliffs. Um, we would have had to have uh, issued parachutes, um, <laughs> you know, standard issue with their gear. Um, so I, I resisted going up 
uh, north and through the lava fields because I was thinking um, ABC beauty shots and that sort of thing, making it appealing uh, on TV as well yeah. as an interesting race. And there was nothing particularly interesting, challenging, but not particularly interesting about the lava fields. Yeah. Um, so, but that's where that was the only say, and it was a beautiful, great, wide, untraveled for the most part, then mm-hmm. road, um, along West Hawaii. And so that's where we ended up going. Mm. And in terms of, um, I mean, I know you were involved until sort of the nineties, but in, t- in terms of Kona as a destination at that stage, was it, was it developed a lot at that stage or, or did you see it change a lot between say the eighties and, and into the nineties? Well, my last race actually was 1989, mm-hmm. and uh, by that time, um, there had been some hotel development along West Hawaii, along the coastline there, mm-hmm. but I understand now it's significantly developed. Mm-hmm. But still back then, um, we were still able to close the roads. We did have impact because we went right by the airport, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. we did have uh, that that impacted people on the island. Um, mm-hmm. But for the, for the most part... All of the years um, that I was involved there, we just had tremendous support. And I'm sure that that continues because the people on the Big Island um, love the event. They love their involvement in the race and they love the economic impact of the race on the on the island. And uh, I think it's all it's all good there. Hmm. So um, what, in terms of John Collins' involvement, I know I keep going, rewinding a bit back to the early years. Um, after that first couple of years, did he just sort of drift off in terms of his involvement um, or, or how did he stay involved? Because he's obviously the, the forefather of our, our sort of uh, yes. long distance sport. Um, what was his involvement? Yes, um, he and his wife, Judy, they, well, John got transferred. Um, uh, he was in the Navy. Mm-hmm. And he got transferred back to the mainland. And uh, he remembers, I don't remember this, but he remembers coming over to the office at uh, the Nautilus Centers and talking to me and to my husband and uh, saying, would you like to keep this thing going? Mm-hmm. I have to go. And I said, no. <laughs> and my husband said, yes. Yeah. And John remembers me being... Uh, less than happy about that <laughs> i i don't recall that conversation but um yeah and then i remember him bringing in a box a cardboard box that had um old applications and rules and regs yeah. and some leftover trophies you know those trophies yeah. made with nuts yeah. and bolts yeah yeah and some um leftover t-shirts cool. and so and said here and so uh, the clubs, our clubs put it together in 1980 and uh, put together support crews for those um, athletes who didn't have any. Mm-hmm. And, uh, man, it was really draining on, on the clubs. <laughs> it was, it just took all of our staff. Yeah. Um, and I sort of, I, I was in the office and I was sort of helping with a little bit of the paperwork there. For, but for the most part, I was just... I was trying to run the clubs yeah, and yeah. unhappy about feeling abandoned. But after the 80 event, when it was clear that I was going to leave the clubs, um, I just thought, well, it's very obvious that the race needs a race director. It needs somebody to really pay attention instead of the last couple of weeks of the event. It's got to yeah. have some full-time attention. And so I said, let me give, my, let me give it a try. Cool. And 
did, did it, when did it start actually making any money in terms of you being able to make a living from it? It was about uh, somewhere between three to five years, probably closer to five. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it, grind it, it was, until then. Yeah. Well, sort of hand to mouth. I mean, you had to you had to uh, raise the support throughout the year. Yeah. And um, I remember the first the first race that I put on the 1981 event. I can't remember how much we had left over at the end. It was something like I mean, it was a it was a pittance. I forget, yeah. maybe a couple hundred dollars, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Which I split up and divided, and it was a little bit of an awkward mo- moment. I felt so grateful to the uh, volunteer directors i wanted to do something and i did couldn't yeah. but i just whatever was left over i just divided it and it was a little bit awkward because they didn't do it for that yeah they didn't do it for that yeah so they got i don't know 50 dollar check or something like that <laughs> yeah yeah and um okay so what you're saying at that stage you know you took it over in, in the early 80s and and really your motivation was to to try to build this into something you could be proud of and 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 a business opportunity and in a way you can create some change um i didn't even think in terms of business opportunity per se or building anything my my central um motivating focus was i wanted to have a party Mm. I wanted to put together a party. I wanted uh, people to come and thoroughly enjoy themselves and walk away with the experience of a lifetime. Um, and somehow in all of that, they were going to swim and bike and run a long way, yeah. but it would still be good. Yeah. <laughs> that part I couldn't quite understand, but the party part I wanted to do. And um, I, I, in terms of choosing Kona as your location, um, did you go through an exhaustive search in terms of the other islands, and and how did how was it that you just ended up on Kona? Well, um, we looked at uh, Kauai and Maui, um, and the roads just really weren't suitable. They didn't have the the big, wide, um, not too heavily traveled road like the one on West Hawaii, the mm. Queen K, and. Um, uh, and so we just settled, and the people on the Big Island were just so receptive to the idea, mm. so helpful. And um, and even the, uh, the the Kona Surf was our host hotel. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it is anymore, but it no. yeah, it was in the early days. Beautiful, beautiful hotel. Yeah. And um, I wanted that to be the host hotel. So I remember going to the general manager there and kind of presenting this wild idea. Um, in fact, I think I went to the King Cam first, and they, they weren't all that thrilled about it. <laughs> yeah. So I went to the Kona Surf, and he told me later, Bob Herkes, he told me later that um, he thought he would go ahead and help this lady out, and then she would go away because there was no way this is ever going to work. Yeah. Uh, yeah <laughs> now, in, in terms of the key moments, you know, you mentioned the Sports Illustrated um, Articles, so uh, you know a lot of people won't know anything about what you're talking about when you when you mention them. So maybe talk through. I know that might have been just before you came on in terms of you know managing the races, but maybe talk us through the the Sports Illustrated um, issues and and what sort of an impact they had and what they were. 
It was huge. Um, Barry McDermott was uh, the journalist, the writer of that article. He wrote, um, I forget how many pages, but um, it was a was a long. He just got wrapped up in the story and the in the in the event. And Tom Warren, of course, was such an interesting character to cover the winner that year, um, as were so many of the people in the race. And um, he got fascinated with it and wrote a, a phenomenal, it was 1979, yeah. and uh, it was in the winter of 1979 and until I moved the race to October. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just a, it was a great article, it's, mm-hmm. yeah, just really great. And it caught the attention of Bob Iger at ABC, who was head of ABC Sports at the time. Mm-hmm. And he took it to Wide World of Sports and told them that they ought to consider covering the event. As I understand the story, they weren't particularly interested, but he kind of continued to push it until they finally, someone at Wide World called John Collins mm-hmm. and uh, asked if he if he would consider allowing Wide World of Sports to cover the Ironman. And he told them that uh, you might as well you might as well cover grass growing. It's interesting. <laughs> and Wide World said, uh, we can make grass growing interesting. Nice. And so they came out in 1980. By that time, John was gone. John and Judy had, had gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the water, the race was scheduled for a date in January, I think it was. And I think it had to be postponed a week. Mm-hmm. The seas were very rough. And um, and had to move, as you as you're familiar with the race, the swim venue had to change. Mm, mm. And uh, instead of being out in the in the open ocean there, the, they had to go into an area that was um, secured yeah. at Waikiki. Yeah. And uh, then they had to do laps. Yeah. Oh <laughs> goodness. So this is wide world of sports coverage mm-hmm. at this stage. And, right, and then and then obviously you know the big break for for the sport, and I'm sure it was a big break for you, came in in 1982, I think it was, and you've you've got a pretty interesting story around that one. Right, we actually had two races in 1982 as we were trying yep. to transition from the winter to the fall, and uh, it was the February 1982 event, mm-hmm. and. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the the race of Julie Moss, yes, Kathleen McCartney, yeah. And uh, the nineteen eighty one event, um, we we didn't have a title sponsor. Um, it was covered by Wide World, and uh, then I was approached by um, a film director out of Colorado who knew the folks at Anheuser Busch, and. Um, I, I never will forget it. He, I, I was, I was actually organizing the race out of my little condo in Honolulu, mm-hmm. and he came to visit there, and asked if I would consider having. Uh, it was called Budweiser Light. That Anheuser Busch was going to introduce a new, a new brand, mm-hmm. and they wanted to, they wanted to run, they wanted to introduce it in Hawaii, and they wanted uh, a sports event as a vehicle to, to launch the, the campaign. Mm-hmm. And so they were considering the Ironman and what I consider having Anheuser-Busch as a title sponsor. Yeah. Well, of course, this was exciting to me because at that point I didn't have two nickels to rub together. So <laughs> yeah. um, I told him that I was interested. But, and, and he said they wanted to do a commercial, which meant cameras, yeah. on the course. 
which was um, not allowed by the ABC contract. Yeah. Well, you know, John, I, it's it's um, hard to exaggerate just how uninitiated and green I was in the business world. Yeah. Um, this was all new to me, and um, I I raised the issue of ABC having exclusive rights, camera rights. And this fellow, Rodney uh, Jacobs, said, no problem. I know those guys at ABC. We're, we're going to work that out. We work with them all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I made the mistake of believing him. And uh, so then he brought the Anheuser-Busch fella out. And, uh, and we, we worked. A, I, fortunately, I had the presence of mind not to sign more than one year. Yeah. That I was grateful for, to get locked in. Because it was a small amount. I forget how much it was, but it was a small amount. I think mm. it was going to be something like $5,000 for three years. And I said, no, we're going to do one year. Yeah. And then we'll see. Yeah. <clears throat> Fortunately. Yeah. So, um, but I said, you know, we have this problem with ABC. Don't worry. We will work it out. We'll yeah. work it out with those guys. We know them. Yeah. <clears throat> As the months went by, I kept checking in with them. Have you contacted? Have you contacted the guys at ABC? Not yet, not yet. We will. Yeah. This went on until race week. Yeah. And uh, when I got to the race, the Freewheel and Films ABC guys were already, were already there. And uh, they still hadn't said anything. Mm. Bryce Wiseman was going to be the producer for ABC. When he came into town, I went over to Rodney Jacobs. I said, Bryce Wiseman is here. you got to go talk to him. And he said, Bryce is in town. Oh, I know, Bryce. Be sure and tell him I said hello. Mm-hmm. So I went over. <laughs> I, I found Bryce, and I said, uh, Rodney Jacobs is in town, and he said to tell you hello. And I, I hit the hair on the back of his neck just stood up. Yeah. What is he doing in town? Well, they had more cameras there than ABC. Yeah. And so the conflict began, and um, it was awful. It was just awful. And um, there were late nights spent on the phone to New York, ABC in New York trying to work this out with Bob Iger up there. And finally, um, the night before the race, um, they, they developed some kind of an uneasy truce about who was going to be where and who was going to have precedence, who was going to have the authority on the course, yeah. to which Rodney Jacobs agreed but then didn't hold to. So um, all day long, I'm getting reports back from the, from the course that the cameramen out there are just about throwing fists at each other. <laughs> and um, and uh, at the, at the I think, who, that was 1982, <clears throat> excuse me, was, I think it was Tenley won that one. I think yep. it was Tenley. Yep. And, um, and uh, oh, the fellow who was the color commentator for ABC, I can see his face. I can't think of his name. But he asked to interview me right after Tenley crossed. Yeah. 
And so he took me aside and he said, you do have a no individual support rule, don't you? That no athlete can get any support from outside, right? Yeah. That's true. And he said, well, what do you think? Bruce Dern, who is an actor over here, yeah. um, he was supposed to be the, turns out they weren't going to do a commercial. They were going to do a documentary, mm-hmm. it turned out. So Bruce Dern was going to be the narrator for this documentary, and he was out on the course. Well, he was running alongside Tenley, and um, and apparently every now and again would hand them a sponge or something. Mm. So ABC uh, threw that up in my face, and um, I at one point I just said that I didn't think that handing a runner a sponge was going to offer any greater advantage really than the draft provided the bikers by the ABC vans. And that's when he said cut. And that was the end of it. Yeah. Well, after later on that evening, um, when the main camera van had come in and I, the producer Bryce Wiseman called me into the van to look at some footage so, oh, was awful. <laughs> he, he kept showing me this footage and kept saying, see how they kept getting in our shots. And I don't know if we have anything we can use here. I, we'll have to wait until I get back to New York to see if, if we don't even know if we're going to pay you your rights fee. We just don't know if we have a show here at all. Yeah. And I honestly, I'm looking at the video and I can't tell that there's a problem. I'm not seeing the, the big problem. But then the finish line cameraman rushed up to the van and said, Bryce, you've got to get out here and see what's going on. This is an incredible finish happening out here. And Bryce sort of, okay, okay, okay. And he went back to um, really hammering me about not having a show. And the cameraman came back again and said, Bryce, we've never seen anything like this. You've got to get out here and see this. And Bryce kind of brushed him off again. Well, the third time the cameraman finally came up and said, Bryce, get out here. You have to see this. He did. And I'm sitting there. It's dark. I'm sitting there in the camera van. I am completely disheartened, broken, thinking this is it. Mm. No ABC coverage. No rights fee. Mm-hmm. The sponsors who have come on board, the few that we had, um, really come on board because of ABC. And the money spent, I'm done. Yeah. The Iron Man's done. So very dejectedly, I get out of the camera van and I start walking over into the night towards the finish line. The people are coming up to me saying, where were you? And uh, you should have seen what happened. So I was told about Julie Moss that she was in the med tent. Go see her. So as I'm walking over towards the med tent, Diana Nyad, bless her heart, came up, gave me a hug and said, don't let those guys get you down, Val. Mm. So it was too late for that. (laughs) So I went to the med tent and there's Julie and she's looking terrific. She's on the uh, stretcher. She's Mm. had some IVs. And I sit down next to her, and she says, well, Val, do you think second place is good enough to let me come back again next year? Nice. And I said, sure, Julie, that's, that's good enough for you to come back next year. And I'm thinking, there's not going to be any next year. Yeah, yeah. 
Ah, oh, crazy. So did the um, did the company both? Co- I mean, obviously you had the ABC coverage, but did the other company end up making that documentary? Yes, causing me more problems. <laughs> right. Yeah, it kept hitting the air, and I'd get a call from ABC, and then finally we had a, a meeting in St. Louis with Anheuser Busch where we had to, you know, they had to be told just knock it off, yeah. don't do that anymore, and had Anheuser Busch have to understand to to you know bring the hammer down on them that don't they can't do that anymore. Yeah. So that obviously changed the the environment a little bit for you. Um, so what happened after 1982 in terms of? what you were able to do in terms of generating um, you know, a sponsor for the race and, and I guess there was a lot more media interest. So maybe tell us about you know the, the subsequent couple of years after that. Well, um, it made a huge difference um, uh, on our sponsorship. Um, I had several of the triathletes mention that, that was motivation for them to actually get started because the, the television broadcast was, was gripping. Um, and, and, um, wide world aired it when they, they aired it quickly, much more quickly than they ever had before. You, they, they wanted to, it was too late to really get ahead of the print media, but they didn't want to be too far out from it. Mm-hmm. So they, they broadcast it very quickly and then they turned around and did something that I understood was unprecedented. They rebroadcast it about two weeks later mm-hmm. and Kathleen McCartney and Julie Moss, um, went on the on the TV circuit and they were on David Letterman and they were all kinds of interviews oh, wow. and uh, it was really neat for them and um, I had um, marketing agents contacting me and uh, in fact did sign one on because I really felt like I was I didn't feel like it I was out of my element all of a sudden I mean I found myself caught in the middle of two giants mm. uh, uh, by my own doing and, uh, I mean, I could have lost ABC, but I think, I really think they saw, rightly saw me as, as just a greenie, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't intend anything malicious. I just mm-hmm. was stumbling along. And of course they wanted the event. They wanted to cover it. Mm-hmm. So I did get a sports marketing agent, um, for a while and, uh, he was able to negotiate, um, uh, much better contracts with me with Anheuser-Busch and with ABC. and um, But I, he didn't stay with me too terribly long because once I kind of, you know, fat, got my footing there, I was able to, to go ahead with it on my own. Mm. And, and as, you, as things grew during the 80s, um, were, you, were you still very much by yourself or, or did it get to a point where you could employ other staff or anything like that? Oh, right from the beginning, really, um, I did. Uh, in fact, um, there was an incredible fellow, Earl Yamaguchi, who was were, had worked with the um, Nautilus Fitness Centers, and um, and he worked with me throughout my whole time and beyond with the Ironman. Mm-hmm. Um, just one of those, one of those people that um, you work with that are exceptional, mm-hmm. loyal. Mm. Um, smart, hardworking, just all good. And mm. so he he was he was like um, just right there all the time. And then I did have um, secretarial help as well. Yeah. Um, so it was really pretty much. And then all the volunteer people on the Big Island. And then we grew over time. We grew. Mm. 
and and in terms of changing the the course at all, I don't know when the I know you said the surf club was initially you were down that end. Um, I wasn't quite sure when the event got shifted down to the King Cam and stuff. Was that during your reign or was that further on into the nineties? Well, we we when I was there, we maintained the Kona Surf Hotel as the headquarters hotel the whole time, but we did shift uh, because it was it was because it was right there by the pier, the King Cam was um, we used we we used their facilities for the banquets mm-hmm. and for the um, um, the displays yeah. all of the the vendors and that yeah cool retail one thing you did just mention before that I thought was interesting um, around Tinley and, and them saying you should be disqualified for outside assistance the, the somebody's put um, a huge amount of past Kona coverage on YouTube and I watched one year and I can't now think what year it was and it may have been your era or not but um, one of the Puntos sisters got DQ'd for drafting was that when you were still involved and um, and how did that come about? Uh, yes um, and you know that was so long ago and it was a con- always controversial thing Yeah, but um, I had I had um, marshals, marshal director, bike director, that I, they were good, good, good people, good guys. Um, And I had to rely on what they said. Hmm. And um, there were discussions before that DQ um, happened about what they were seeing out there. I was not out there and um, and I had to rely on their expertise, their mm-hmm. skill, their mm-hmm. truth, their honesty and integrity and the, all of that I could rely on. Mm-hmm. And so um, when they said Val, she was drafting, mm-hmm. I, I believed them and I had to stand by them. I could not cut their knees out from under yeah. them as difficult as it was going to be. Um, I had to. I had to take the heat for it. Yeah, no, it's, it's certainly. You, you probably don't know. It's very different these days in terms of the the penalties you get. You know, you go into your penalty tent and you serve your time, and then you carry on with the race. Whereas she'd done the whole thing and got DQ'd. It looked, uh, yeah, it looked like a very unfortunate situation. I've, I've, at a very small scale, I've had similar instances and in, in races I've organised, and it's uh, it's never much fun. Um, Talk us through the, the, the sort of the changeover to professionalism because we know in the early years there was no prize money and I think it was 1986 where the first prize money was awarded. Um, tell us how that sort of came about because I know it was, it was a really big decision for you and, and yeah, so just tell us sort of how you grappled with that decision and, and why you decided to award prize money. Well, um Boy, that was was it 1986? Yeah, that was the first year, right? I think so. Um, so that meant in the, after the 1985 race, then <clears throat> I was approached by someone I didn't know, um, and uh, my, the the couple that handled our press uh, mentioned to me one time or one one day that there was a fellow there in town that wanted to meet with me and uh, and it was suggested to me that I do meet with him that he he well, wanted to propose an idea so I met with him at the Kona Sur for breakfast the next morning and um, he gave me an offer of a hundred thousand dollars he said I will make available to you 
a one-time offer of $100,000 for next year's race um, so that because he said, I think it's time that you consider prize money now. Mm. And I was certainly feeling the heat um, in both directions. There were a lot of people who did not want me to do that as there were people who thought I needed to. Mm. Um, I was torn because I, I, I didn't know that I didn't want the character of the event to change. And I was told that it would. I was afraid it would. So um, anyway, I, I met with this fellow. He gave me this offer, and uh, he said, I'm, I'm only going to do it this one time. If you take this offer, it's going to be up to you to raise the money thereafter. Right. So I, I was stunned. Mm. And I said, I don't know. I don't know. I said, give me, give me some time. And I think I gave him a month or something like that. Give me a month to... And so I flew to New York to talk to Fred LeBeau. I went to Colorado to talk to Mike Eisner of the Coors Classic. Um, um, I talked with Bob Bright of the Chicago Marathon. So you had Fred who had, been, had not had any prize money for years and years and years and then went to prize money. You had Bob Bright who um, started his race in Chicago with prize money. And then you had the Coors Classic that had never had prize money and didn't intend to. Mm. <clears throat> so I thought I got a good perspective there. And uh, uh, Bob Wright, of course, was adamant that I should. Fred LeBeau said, uh, do with caution. He thought that it would be good, but to be careful. And Mike Eisner said, just don't do it. Mm. So after just giving it due consideration, I decided, and, I, and it, was a, it was going to be a huge decision for me because that meant I had to continue to raise that money. Mm, mm. And uh, that was going to be up to me. Mm. Um, so I, after giving it a lot of thought, I finally uh, met with this fellow and said, okay, this is what we'll do. And, uh, and we did, and it worked out quite well. It was the right decision after all. And um, there were a lot of people who were disappointed. There were a lot of people who were ecstatic about it. And it was a good thing sponsorship-wise, so I didn't have the worry that I, that I was concerned about, not being able to raise that again. Mm. <clears throat> so it, it all worked out. It was for the best. So in that, in that first year, from your recollections, did you have $100,000 and then you basically maintained that for the, right. for the subsequent years? I mean, $100,000 yeah. in 86 is pretty significant compared to, compared to these days. It's, I think it's $650,000 now, but I'm sure 100000 back then is worth a lot more than 650000 these days. It was a lot. Yeah. It was yeah. a lot, especially in, in that sport because it was still so young. Yeah. Um. And what what sort of impact did it have on the event? You know, you said you, you said some people were happy, some were, were not. Were, were, some were happy, some were unhappy. Um, but did it actually grow participation numbers? Did you get more professionals racing? Um, yeah, what what sort of impact did it actually have? Um, certainly, yes, it was. Um, the, the participation was. I, I'm trying to think whether it actually increased participation. I think it certainly did increase uh, the interest of those who wanted to compete for money. Clearly, mm, mm. Um, um, but I, I did maintain the uh, the other aspect as well. I, I, I kept um, the lottery 
Yep. And uh, and we had we had the qualifiers then. So I thought we had a good balance. We had the professionals, we had the qualifying aspect, and we also had that that lottery for people who couldn't couldn't ever fall into either category. And, and at that stage, in the in the sort of once we're going through the eighties, had the event expanded um, internationally in terms of Ironman events? I know you said you have qualifiers, but were they actually the Ironman races, and were you managing that as well, like it's branded these days? Yes, um, we did do licensed events, um, and New Zealand really was our first. Yeah. Yes, and in the first one that we did, we we did slightly less than full Ironman distances. I think mm-hmm. the thinking at the time, and it was all new, the thinking at the time was let's keep it just slightly less than um, so that the, the uh, world championship then in Hawaii – would have the full distances. Yeah. So I think it was like two, 100, and then a marathon. Yeah, I think. It was along those lines, but it was definitely shorter. Little, yeah, a little bit. And then we just decided that was no good. So yeah. we went back to full distances. And, and so was it a licensing thing then? So they were paying yes. you, you all a fee to, 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 to do that? Yes, and Earl Yamaguchi, whom I mentioned earlier, he wrote the manuals because we wanted it very standard. I mean, we were really, really insistent on maintaining the same quality of standards that we had in Hawaii. We wanted to duplicate as as much as we could. Yeah. Everything. So Earl Earl wrote those the, the manual for that, even down to how many ounces of peanut butter and jelly on the sandwiches and how many sandwiches at the AC. That's how thorough he was. And uh, so yeah, so we just we had it in uh, New Zealand and Japan and Canada and Germany. Um, Probably Australia it came on pretty soon. There, yes. Um, that was, but I think there was one there in Australia when I was doing it. But I don't, I don't think it was. I can't really remember. I don't think it was a full Ironman. I think that was after I left. There was. Right. Is there one there now? Uh, there's all sorts over there now. <laughs> but there was okay. the Foster Ironman was uh, was there original. But I'm not sure when what year uh, that started. In New Zealand, it was uh, Double Brown. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. And then in Japan, it was Yanmar, which was a tractor. Nice. Yes, yes. Um, so what what are some of your you know, your great memories from you know your your era there? You know, it was about ten years or so. You know, what what are what are some of the most memorable moments from an organizational point of view and, and maybe some of the characters and so on that you had over the years? I mean, I know there's probably hundreds, but but what things really stood out for you? Yeah, there used to be hundreds in my memory, but at <laughs> sixty five are fewer now but um the people the the people i worked with the volunteers Mm -hmm. i mean that that really that's the that's the jewel in my in my memory cabinet right there are the people Mm -hmm. i worked with um you know those friendships that you forge over the years are 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 just memorable but Mm -hmm. um the, f- the first race I did, uh, I, I got on board early in 1980 in preparation for the 81. That was a very hard year. One, my, one of my first memorable experiences was when I was, I was talking to different athletes, swimmers, bikers, and runners, trying to tell them, okay, if, you, if you're going to swim 2.4 miles in this race here, what, 
what's everything you would want to have there? Everything to have the ideal swim course and the ideal race for you. And I did that with the bikers. I did that with the runners. I wanted them to tell me what would they want for the best possible race. Well, I'd already been thinking we can't have support crews out there. So I had to think through a system of how are we going to, we're going to take everybody's clothing from them before race day. And we're going to put them in bags. We're going to number the bags and we're going to have the bag ready for them when they get out of the water, when they get off their bikes. Right. Yeah. Uh, there was a lot of skepticism about how we were going to pull that off. And I remember having lunch. I was, I was asked to have lunch with a couple of the fellows in Honolulu who sat down with me and they said, we know your heart's in the right place, <laughs> but you can't do this because we're going to be training all this time to get there. And if you don't have our bag with our bike shoes or our running shoes, the race is over for us. And I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was confident we could do it. And so I listened to them and, and uh, they remembered pleading with me to really reconsider that but getting nowhere yeah. and uh, sort of walking away, shaking their head, saying, this is going to be, this is going to be awful. Yeah. yeah. But we did it. Yeah. And it's still there today. And who knew yeah. that it, it hadn't been done before and taking everybody's bikes the night before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it worked. Somehow it worked. Brilliant. Any particular characters on the, you know, whether whether it be the winners or people that just rocked up every year, you know, have you got a three or four that that really stand out for you, or any particular races? Yes, um, I re- I wasn't there at the at the race in 1980, but I remember stories about the incredible Huck. <laughs> um. And uh, he was quite a character. He was 60 or 60-something. And I had heard that um, during the swim, since the swim had to be moved um, over to um, uh, the kind of a beach area that was uh, had a reef around it because the, the water was so rough. Yeah. And that he was kind of walking on the bottom, just sort of doing his arms, doing the stro- strokes with his arms, but actually walking on the bottom. Yeah. But then in 1981, did you ever hear of Walt Stack? No. He, he was, I think he was 81 that year. Crikey. I think he was, and what a character. He was a hod carrier and a real salty kind of guy. Yeah. But uh, I, I heard he was drinking beer through the whole race. And uh, our rules were a little lax yeah. in those early years. In fact, how you know, I I measured the course that first year. I I, I didn't know how to do that either. <laughs> I measured it in a car. Yeah, yeah. And didn't know you don't do it that way. No. no. And so, <laughs> so I rode the I rode the course up to Javi. Yeah. In a car. And I was writing in all the pre-race literature description of the course, and I said it was flat. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I remember getting mail back after that. Don't Please don't ever call that course flat again. And so I went out and wrote it again and noticed that it was yeah. up and down. Yeah. 
Yeah. It just didn't feel that way in the car. Um, and, uh, and then we went out and actually measured it accurately with one of those wheel things. Yeah. yeah. Um, you can tell my athletic terminology hasn't improved in 35 years. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's and um, uh, Bill Bell, he's a fixture in the sport. Mm. He's 92 now. Just got married on Valentine's Day. At 92. <laughs> Bill Bell, yes. And he um, was, his first race was February 82, I think it was. It was 1982, one of those two. And he was 60 years old at the time. That's when I first met him. And that was always my favorite age group. Then it was 60 and over mm. until the guys came up and said, you got to you, you got to break this down. We can't be competing. We we seventy year olds can't be competing with the sixty year old guys. Yeah. So we started. We just kept adding age groups. We did the sixty to sixty four, sixty five to to seventy, seventy sixty nine, mm-hmm. and we had to keep adding incremental age groups as as uh, the triathletes got older and older. Goodness. But Bill's been competing right up until he's a fascinating interview. Yeah. Um, he really is. He's in. He lives in California. In fact, he's getting inducted into the Hall of Fame oh, next nice. month. Yeah. A um, couple of final ones I've got uh, just around the. You, you talked about the qualifying. Um, when did the race actually, or, or did it? Was it selling out by the time sort of you were finishing up in '89? I mean, I know you had to qualify, but were you at, at capacity? Oh, we were turning away a lot of people every year. Oh, yeah. yes, we we did. They, I believe that the um, the limit has increased. Um, I, there there are more people because I think we were cutting it off at twelve hundred or fifteen hundred, expecting twelve hundred to show. There was a mm-hmm. there was a pretty um, consistent attrition rate every year. So mm-hmm. I think it was. 14 or 1500 expecting 1200 to show is what we yeah. but um i think they've increased that number oh, now yeah yeah, yeah and they've gone to um staggered starts now last as well. year was the first year yes yeah, so mm-hmm. um they had yeah i think it was about 2000 last year <gasps> oh my but it, it, it doesn't work i Another story for another day. <laughs> I can't imagine that many bikes on the pier. Is that yeah. where they are on the pier? Yeah, it is. So it's, no kidding. Uh, it's wow, the, the I'm Queen impressed. K is, the Queen K is, is a mess of bikes. It's, um, yeah, that's a whole <laughs> other topic that I'll talk for for hours about if you get me started. <laughs> <laughs> so how, how did it all, in, in terms of the end for you, um, how did all that come about? Um, how did how did what come about the, the, the end? You know, the, the end. Uh, and, uh, was it eighteen eighty nine or ninety? Where I think you whether you sold the event. Maybe maybe talk us through yes. what happened, why it happened, and and yeah, just just talk us through. Well, I quit every year actually, <laughs> especially after eighty one. I really, to me, eighty one was a disaster in my own eyes. It was a it was a wholesale failure, and that was it. And I was very depressed. But um, the athletes um, convinced me to give it another go, and so I did. But um, I, I never knew what I was doing. I mean, the learning curve for me always felt like in the whole 10 years I was with the Ironman, it just felt like it was straight up all the time. Mm. So for the whole decade, I was scared. Mm. I really was. Mm. And that's kind of draining. So um, I really... I, 
I, I looked forward to the day when I could let it go, but by the time I, the race had um, become pretty well established, I, want, I wanted to be very careful about letting it go. I wanted to put it in hands of people that would um, take it beyond the level that I felt that I could or wanted to. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd taken it about as far as I, I cared to take it. And, and but by, the time, by the time I left, I was more involved in business and politics than I was in race organization, and that's not where my heart was. Right. So... Um, I searched and searched. I made a colossal mistake in uh, um, contracting initially um, with a couple of guys that turned out to be not not nice. Mm. And uh, so I was able to um, undo that one. And uh, then finally, Jim Gill, who really is right up the street from me in yeah. Tarpon Springs. He really is. He's only about 45 minutes away. And uh, he had done the race a number of times. Um, and and so had uh, the another person that he was going to assign as president, mm-hmm. appoint as president. And so I felt I felt pretty good about um, about them taking over. I mm. think um, my understanding is uh, I, I really have not kept track of or in touch with things that have been going on so i know very little next to nothing but it seems like the race is prospering which is all i really wanted it to do i wanted it to prosper i didn't Mm. want it to die Mm. and and so for you you know you'd invested huge amount of time and it you know obviously it sounded like after the the you know the first few years, you were able to make a, a living out of it. Um, you know, I'm sure you didn't uh, wasn't massively um, financially rewarding through those early years at all. But did you come out of it okay at the other end in terms of? I mean, I assume you you didn't turn up with the the box that, you, that John Collins turned up with a few entries in it. You know, you turned up with a, a, a fantastic asset that was you know now had events all around the world. So. Did it work out okay for you in the end in terms of, you know, a financial transaction? You know, um, I accept the way things have turned out. Um, mm. I'm, I'm really okay with it. What it, it, was, um, it was interesting on several levels what actually did happen. Um, that was the race sold in December of 89. Uh, mm. And um, at that particular point, um, Ronald Reagan was in office up here, and uh, he had reduced the capital gains tax. Uh, it had been at 50%, and he had reduced it down to, I think, 35, 25, something like that. But it wasn't going to go into effect until 1990. Uh-huh. So with the race, uh, the company was sold in December of 89, yeah. and so the, the capital gains tax was 50%. And since I started with zero, yeah. it was all capital gains. So um, yeah. our government got 50% right off the top. Yeah, and uh, then then another unfortunate thing was that that was right at a time I had I'd gotten good advice on what to do with the proceeds from the sale, except that over here in this country we had um, a problem right after um, all of that was invested in what was called junk bonds and the Michael Milken episode, which a lot of people got very 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 much hurt. Mm. And so, um, unfortunately, I lost a lot in that. Mm. Um, I, I, I trusted, and, and I, the good guys that were, were helping me, they got hurt mm. too. Everybody mm. got hurt. 
And thirdly, just prior to the close of the sale, all of a sudden, about, I think there were about five lawsuits that erupted. Um, some of them just because people got nervous because all of a sudden there's going to be a new owner. They wanted to make sure their investment was protected. I was able to, to shake those. But I did walk away with three, um, one from a guy who had been a nuisance just about the whole time I was there. And I understand he may still be, mm-hmm. um, just lives to sue the Iron Man, one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had about three I had to finish up with. It took me about three years. Mm. Litigation over here is hugely expensive. Mm. So with the government walking away with 50%, with losing a good good amount in the stock market, and then with having to finalize um, three litigation for about three years afterwards, mm. um, that was... That was that. Seats, but I was able to. I'm very, 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 very grateful that I had enough. I came home, came back here, um, bought a house here, and it was just the right kind of house. Where when my mom and my dad and a, one of my brothers had a serious stroke, I had a house that where I could bring them in and take care of them for um, for a while. And so I did that. It was. It all worked out very, very well. Did was it was it much about it that you missed? You know, I mean, I know from a I run a, a lot smaller races and stuff, but, you know, you can get a real good buzz after the event, you know, when you've done a good job. It's like anything, you know, when you've had a good race yourself or whether you've pulled off a fantastic race from an organisational point of view. Was there things that you missed from the event? Well, I miss the people, but um, I don't miss the terror, mm-hmm. the, just the fear uh, I mean, I remember one time we had an incident where, you know, when all the swimmers are out of the water, if you still have one bike standing on the pier, that's mm. not good. And we did that one year. We had a bike. And so we were getting ready to send the divers out when, um, when a guy walked on the pier and said, can I get my bike now? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you just want to shoot those people. <laughs> hug him and then smack him. Yeah. yeah. But he had decided at the last minute he just didn't feel well enough to do the race, so he went and had breakfast. Yeah. But didn't tell anybody. So uh, that that was the uh, instigation for a new rule the next year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> people don't ever do that again. Yeah. But uh, so you have those kind of fears. Then there was always um, the 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 awful awful situation of what happens the letters that you get and the phone calls you get prior to the race especially in the summertime when people are out training and they're getting hurt mm. um, there were deaths uh, and that was the instigation for the hard shell helmet ruling yeah um, which I think was a very good one mm. um, look, it's been absolutely fascinating talk talking to you I just love the love hearing about it you know without you. Who knows what would have happened? So I think we all owe you, you know, people in our sport owe you a lot of uh, gratitude and thanks. You know, it's a race that I've gone and done a couple of times and I now go over there every year and organise a training camp before the half Ironman that they have there. So, and I think you would be absolutely blown away when you actually see the size of the sport these days. Um, I'm sure. Is there any other people that you wanted to mention in terms of thanks that that maybe, I mean, I know you you talked about your your guy who was your right-hand man for a long time, but, but anything? Anything else, you know, any other people out there that you think um, perhaps oh. don't necessarily, and I know you probably then start excluding about so 500 others, but 
any particular people or things that you want to mention that maybe we haven't talked about? Oh, I just, I just am, I, I just am awed when I think about it. Anytime I think about the quality of the people who helped me, because it, I didn't, I didn't put that race together. Mm. I had people who advised me continually, who knew what they were talking about. Um, Mo and Bige Matthews did the, you know, the were our swim directors, and and that's um, they're. Bigay is suffering from Alzheimer's now, mm-hmm. and uh, Mo is in his 80s, and just a dear, dear couple. And Bob Laird, who was our medical director for many, many years, he moved just south of me. He's only about an hour away now. Nice. And um, boy, he was great. He's a pediatrician, but he just he just really um, became an international expert. I mean, he was conducting. Um, research there at the race. Yeah. It was it was incredible what he was doing, and on the talk circuit even now because there was so much uh, discovered by from the athletes during uh, race day. Yeah. And um, oh, timing director Frank Sayer, and just I, I I'm gonna miss so <laughs> mentioning so many people. But all of the volunteers were just uh, phenomenal. I don't know how many volunteers they have now, but when I left, we had upwards to about 3,500 on race day or throughout race week. Are they still doing a parade? They still do a parade. I think they have around about 5,000 volunteers now, I think. And they have a a volunteers party the night after. Um, So they have the awards dinner on the Sunday and then you have the the volunteers party on the, the Monday. Oh, see, that just makes my heart smile. Yeah. Um, have you ever been back to Kaya? I went back in 1990, um, but I haven't been back since. Yeah. I haven't um, been back since, no. We've got, to, if, we've got to start a petition, get Val back to Kona and, oh. uh, and get WTC, to, who, who now own it, to fly you out there because, um, yeah, no, huge gratitude to you. I know a lot of the audience um, love the stuff, love hearing from you and, uh, and probably don't realise how much of an impact you and obviously the team that you had at the time um, mm-hmm. had on our sports. So, no, thoroughly appreciate your time. And, um, yeah, one day we'll have to it get was you back del- in Kona. Oh, it was delightful to talk with you and to meet you, John. It was really, really nice. I appreciate it. Perfect. It's, it's interesting listening to those interviews and just realising how far the sports come, eh? Absolutely. You know, like it's pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah, we're now we're debating whether or not to have prize money. Imagine if they had that these days. Said, okay, we're cutting the prize money at Kona. Yeah. That would be interesting. Surely the prize wouldn't turn up. No, well, they'd go to another race. Mm. They'd, they'd kill it, wouldn't it? You would think so. The only thing I would argue, which I, I think it would kill it, but I remember Melina once talking to me about Greg Bennett not doing Iron Man. I think mm-hmm. it was Greg Bennett. Uh, Greg Bennett's the one who won the, the run lots, yeah, and he won the big race. The, yeah, he won the big money race in America a number lifetime, of times. Lifetime, yep. yeah, whatever it was. Um, and he was saying Harry told he was talking to him about it, how the thing about winning Kona is there's a value to that post career. Mm. You know that that you know that there's an income that will maybe an income, but there's so much value to having that tag on you for the rest of your life. Whereas Greg Bennett. How remembered will he be in the sport Absolutely. 25 years from now? Mm. You know, whereas someone who's won Kona is always there. So if you took the money away, would it still draw people for that reason? Molina wrongly gets identified the whole time. He's won, He's a former Ironman world champion in 1988. It's like, well, that is amazing. But the rest of his career is 10 times more amazing. Yeah, but that's not the most significant moment of yeah, his career, is it? His no. Olympic distance career is what is the most impressive. 
but yeah, he gets remembered because of that. So, mm. so maybe there'd still be some value, but I think it would be a diminishing kind of experience. But anyway, John, let's talk about our patrons. Mad, the Mr. Madman, George Gray. We've got Alistair Speed Feet Fleet. And Rock Out, Peter Githin. Good times, guys. If you want to be a patron on the show and you want to support us and what we're doing, you go www.imtalk.me. And it's all pretty obvious on our front page. And you just go from there. Okay, Jombo sponsors. Athlinks.com. Social networking for endurance athletes. Extreme endurance. Your lactic buffer. And our patrons. And uh, you can become a patron by going me. Jumbo. Chief is just speaking fast. Well, I kind of realized I'd said it, so I kind of tried to rush through it. <laughs> I kind of, oh, blah. Uh, what's your goss, John? What's my goss? Have you left yet? No, we've got one week to go, Bevan. Mm. I'm just getting through that shortest day tomorrow. Hopefully, done one of my last key sessions last week. So, wait a second, how long is it to race day? What day's race day? Race day, I think it's about the 8th or 9th. So, I've still got ninth, a couple, July. Couple, of, couple of weeks to go. And it's going to be a bit of a funny taper because the way we've got it structured, you know, so we getting from New Zealand to Europe is a bloody yep. big experience. It's, you know, it's, it's nearly. It's almost three days of traveling when you consider the farting around getting to the airport one end, the farting around getting at the other end. You basically, we, we leave Christchurch and you have a, we get, you know, you've got to get to the airport an hour and a half or so before, and then you've got an hour and a half to Auckland, and then you have your wait there, and then you've got about a 12 hour flight. I mean, are you a good flight? Crimea River, but I mean, we're, we're going to <laughs> Europe. It's, we go to America, and then you've got to go through LA, and you've got to get your bags, and you've got to recheck in. That is, that is the least enjoyable part of this entire trip, is going to be going through LAX. And then why do you go through LAX? Oh, you... I just had to. It just it was the only way it was going to work. Although it's better now because it's got the new international airport, mm. but it used to be painful. So I'm a little stressed, and I'm actually not going to get through the airport in time. I haven't got that long in transit. And then we, then it's another twelve hours to get across there, and then picking all up all our camp athletes. And yeah, do you so like flying? Yeah, I don't mind it at all. I like yeah, it. Yeah, we've discussed this before. We're, we're both uh, we're yeah. both good flyers. Joe's not. No. So we've got to do some drugs. I went to the doctor, so I went to the doctor. And You've got to get some heavy duty. I get some serious knockout drugs. Oh, do you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I get some good shit. Oh, so, get some sleep. So, so I, don't, I don't want to use drugs. So I go to the doctor, but Joe's not a very comfortable flyer at all. And uh, and and she likes flying with me because I'm a comforter for her. But I go to the doctor... I remember I had that heart thing a while ago. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Should have listened <laughs> to this book, book today. <laughs> and uh, so we go to the doctor and uh, I go, oh, I, I'm, I'm traveling a bit in the next period and I, I really struggle to sleep. And uh, so she starts calling out, oh, I've tried them before. I said, yeah, yeah, I've tried them before. And she named a couple and I said, oh, she goes, have you tried this thing here? She goes, where'd you get it from? Because you can't get there in New Zealand. And I was like, oh, shit. Because I, <laughs> <laughs> I was just talking through my teeth. And I go, oh, no, I got it in the States. They sell it at the pharmacy. And she goes, yeah, America, they need some standards. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I skimmed some drugs for Joe. So I'm nice. now a dealer. Good. Yeah, I probably shouldn't be telling the public that. No. No, uh, well. So no, it's good times getting that last bit of training do done, but it's, yeah, it's a bit of a funny taper because we're doing a bit more training in the camp, which is partly because we're doing a tour and it's going to be wicked, wicked times, and we're partly, you know, course familiarisation, but for the Kiwis that are going across, it's going to be a really important acclimation period as well, so doing a bit of extra training as opposed to what we'd normally do, so it'll be... Last key session this weekend, a few easy days leading into the travel, get there, one or two easy days, and then boom, into the camp, three solid days, three or four solid days, and then taper into the race. So it's going to work out perfectly. So the question, John, is how are you managing the family? Is it, is it always good. crazy before you go away? Yeah, and given that I've only been back for a couple of weeks, it's I'm picking, you know, again, we've recorded this a month ago. Yeah. 
probably not flavour of the month, but uh, <laughs> but you're half, leaving two days. Sick, second half of the second half of the year. How, how long have you gone for altogether? A couple of weeks. Okay, good times. That's how you feed the family. They don't exactly. get fed if you unless you do this. Exactly. exactly. Them Make sure that. you become a patron. Help me feed my family. There we go, John. Let's wrap it up. Iron Russ. I mean no. Train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha. kaha.